You're welcome, Neil. Is this thing on? Seriously, can anyone please tell me if we really are on air right now? Are we, Alex? Do you know? Are we on air? Is uh, this it would actually be, working? Make you feel better if I said yes. 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 Is it working or not? I believe so. I'll let you know at the end of the show if it didn't work. Uh, no, it's working. We're good. We're good. We're good. All right. Uh, we can't tell people to call to tell us if it's working because the only number we have... We need for guests because we can't afford one of those fancy Comex systems that costs a couple thousand bucks, and most radio stations and lots of podcasts use to handle multiple phone lines. But you can text or leave a voicemail at 773-U-BUY-OVA. It's a long story. 773-828-9682, 773-828-9682. Or you could DM us on Twitter or post at This Is Hell Radio where you can follow us on Twitter, or you can message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, where you can like us on Facebook. If you can hear us over the air here in the Chicago area, contact us in any of those ways I just said. Tell us you can hear us and tell us how it sounds, because here's the potentially historic thing that's happening right now. Right now, we are making history, maybe, possibly, I think, it's hard to tell when you're making history, so I'm really not certain. Anyway, for the very first time, kinda, we are airing live from our very own studio above a pool table in a bar, kinda, in that we've created live streaming content from this space before, but we've never broadcast live on WNUR, Chicago Sound Experiment, 89.3 FM from our new studio before. This is kind of a big deal for us. And it has taken a lot of hard work, not by me, but by other people. Sure, I do the hard work of writing the radio show as well as a separate Patreon podcast every week. But the actual work that physically built the studio, I'm not that much involved in that. That's not my thing. And to be honest, I'm pretty sure everyone involved in the construction of these still incomplete studios are very, very happy with the fact that I'm not that involved. These studios, and therefore this week's live show, are brought to you by our subscribers on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, and everyone who has gone to our website, thisishell.com, and clicked on support. So thank you, patrons, subscribers, supporters, and everyone listening. If it wasn't for you, this week's show would literally not be happening. Every July on This Is Hell, it's Listener Appreciation Month, when we only have guests who are suggested by our audience, and the month culminates in our annual Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show. This is art. The artists featured in the show are all artists who are listeners of This Is Hell and suggested themselves for the art show, or are artists suggested by other listeners. We take no money, no commission from any of the art sold by the artists. The reason I'm telling you all of this is because This Is Art closes today, Saturday, August 31st, and there is a closing party that I will be co-hosting along with some of the artists who participated in the show this year and in past years. 
The This Is Art closing party happens this afternoon and into the early evening from 2 p.m. to 7 p.m. outside the door of the studio from which I think I'm broadcasting right now. Second Story Studios Art Gallery on the second floor above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, around the corner, around the world on Devon. That's today, the closing of This Is Art 2019 at Second Story Studios, 2251 West Devon on the second floor above Carrie's Lounge. Now, we don't know if this is working or going to continue to function or if it is if it actually is currently operating properly. So if you are listening over the air right now on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston Sound Experiment here in Chicago, and you suddenly hear dead air, listen to us live at thisishell.com. Again, if you are listening on, on something people used to call a radio and the show suddenly drops out entirely, go to the thing that people today call a computer or a smartphone or tablet or whatever device you have and continue listening live at thisishell.com. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. And on this week's Hell, well, let me tell you about that in a second. Producing this week's Hell, Alex Jerry. What's new by you, Alex? Anything new when it comes to whether we are actually broadcasting over the air at this moment? Oh, uh, yeah, 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 we're good. I just listened to it on the radio. Sweet. How did it sound? I mean, it sounds like it normally does on the radio. So, yeah, we're good. Uh, but like I said, if there's, like Chuck said, if there's any problems, uh, just go to thecell.com and you'll have a clearer stream. And anything new by you other than that? I'm no, now t- I know how these NASA engineers feel <laughs> with uh, everything on the line. I, really? Really? You're going to compare yourself to a NASA engineer? <laughs> Uh, Let's just hope this doesn't end the way of the challenger. I want to welcome any new listeners we may have here in Chicago, as I met a lot of people who had no idea who the hell I was following my appearance on the Michael Brooks Show live at Lincoln Hall last Saturday night. And if you heard this week's Patreon podcast when we played our 2011 interview with historian and foreign policy analyst James Peck, author of Ideal Illusions, How the U.S. Government Co-Opted Human Rights. Yep. U.S. conquers, colonizes, and consumes everything it can, including concepts like human rights. If you listen to that podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, you can hear me talk about what an idiot I was on Michael's show. But if you want to know what made me such an idiot, you got to subscribe at patreon.com slash thisishell. But here's a hint. It has to do with the fact that I'm the bitter, blind, broke, emphasis on broke, gap-toothed host of an anti-capitalist podcast and radio show. So welcome to those I may have met last night or last Saturday night at the Michael Brooks show. On this week's This Is Hell, let's see, we have Richard Hunsinger, a writer and activist who argues that migrant concentration camps represent a descent into fascist barbarism and are related to the inherent tendencies of capitalism. And that's taken directly from the site where the article was published, Cosmonaut. So that sounds like a blast. Nothing like christening our new studio by talking about an article titled Holocaust Capitalism and the System's Inevitable Spiral Toward Fascism. Unfortunately, that sounds pretty on brand for us here at This Is Hell. Then in the second hour, Richard Seymour returns to This Is Hell. And if you think, uh, if you look him up on a search engine, no, we are not having the former NFL defensive lineman back on the show. Instead, we'll be talking to the writer and broadcaster from Northern Ireland who has a new book out called The Twittering Machine about all the evils of social media that have addicted us to a way of communicating that could be as revolutionary as movable type. The most recent appearance by Richard on This Is Hell was 
back in February when we spoke with him about his article Brexit and the White Working Class, which you can find on his Patreon page at patreon.com slash Richard Seymour WTF. Following talks on Holocaust capitalism and our newly inflamed scripturient obsessions, and no, scripturient is not the word of the week, the word I came across while doing research, which I did not know the definition. No, it's another word from Richard's writing because Richard is always introducing myself and Alex to new vocabulary. By the way, scripturient means having a strong urge to write. Scripturient, as in the scripturient nature of those people who are constantly posting on every media platform, giving their labor away for free, which devalues all our work, while willingly sacrificing their privacy, thus making everyone a target for surveillance, is really, really annoying. After those conversations, we'll talk to sociologist Adia Harvey Wingfield about her book, Flatlining Race, Work, and Healthcare in the New Economy. Adia's study reveals what happens to racial relations within an organization that is attempting to diversify in order to better reflect their increasingly changing customer base. In particular, what happens when all of that happens in an age of neoliberalism? Well, it's not pretty and it does not bode well for the future of U.S. healthcare. Adia will tell us how black healthcare workers and their white colleagues say their white colleagues depend upon racial stereotypes and make prejudgments when caring for people of color and describe the complicated, frustrating, alienating, irritating life of black healthcare work, their unacknowledged contributions, and the need for change. Adia Harvey Wingfield is professor of sociology at Washington University in St. Louis. And our final guest before our regular feature, The Moment of Truth with Jeff Dorchin will be historian and Latin studies scholar Aviva Chomsky, who earlier this month, before Bernie Sanders unveiled his climate change plan, posted the TomDispatch.com article, Jobs, the Environment, and a Planet in Crisis, Unions versus Environmentalists, or in Unions and Environmentalists. And yes, Aviva is the eldest daughter of past guest Gnome and the late Carol Chomsky, and let us never mention it again because I'm not having Aviva on today so we can get in Noam's good graces and have him back on as we haven't spoken to him in several years now. We're having Aviva on because her article is a very open-minded critical analysis of the divides over climate change policy on the left between environmentalists and labor. And they're not as divided as the right or left media wants you to think they are. But in those divisions can be found legitimate critiques of the Green New Deal that should be addressed if we are going to do anything about global warming. Aviva is professor of history and coordinator of Latin American studies at Salem State University in Massachusetts. Her most recent book is 2014's Undocumented, How Immigration Became Illegal. As always, contributor Jeff Dorchin will deliver a moment of truth to wrap up this week's show. This week, I think I'm reading this correctly. Jeff looks too closely at spiders. And I'm sick of living on media time, allowing the media to consume, to kill my time, and damn it, I'm going to do something about it. This week's live four-hour This Is Hell is being broadcast from the studios of, well, us. This Is Hell now has our very own somewhat functional, nearly complete studio, and I hope you can celebrate our first ever broadcast from here, live on Chicago's Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, streaming live right now at thisishell.com, and podcast in its entirety shortly after our live broadcast, also at thisishell.com. Come celebrate with us this afternoon during the closing of This Is Art 2019 from 2 p.m. to 7 p.m. at Second Story Studios Art Gallery, the gallery we 
share a space with up here on the second floor above Carrie's Lounge in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood at 2251 West Devon. That's 2251 West Devon from 2 p.m. to 7 p.m. today, the closing of This Is Art 2019. This Is Hell is also rebroadcast in an abbreviated form on the Chicago Southside's Lumpen Radio, WLPN-FM, and on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, KRFP-FM. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is chicken breast? Yeah. Toby Amador has an article at Shape Magazine. Yeah. Subscribing to Shape Magazine, yeah. Chuck, yeah. Uh, titled The Best Hangover Foods to Help You Feel Like a Human Again. In it, Toby writes, once your stomach is ready for a hefty meal, opt for some chicken breast, one of the best hangover foods thanks to its cysteine. Cysteine is an amino acid and your body needs to produce the antioxidant glutathione, which is used to break break down the toxic byproducts of alcohol metabolism. Boozing decreases your body's stores of this antioxidant, so chicken has enough cysteine that it can help the body increase glutathione and possibly decrease those hangover symptoms. So that makes this week's hangover cure chicken breast. You know who does have a subscription to Shape Magazine? Who? The hoarder on my first floor. Is that how you, were you down there uh, rooting around for hangover cures? (laughs) No, I just think it's funny that she gets Shape Magazine. She never picks it up, you know. She doesn't pick up any of her mail, but I just think it's funny. (laughs) That's the magazine, one of the magazines she subscribes to. Haven't had a hoarder update in a while. Uh, That's not a good thing. Uh, And cysteine that you were just mentioning has come up before as a hangover cure when it is found in chicken eggs, so it makes sense that it's in chicken breast as well. I'm, I'm starting to wonder if there's some historic link between the production of alcohol and the domestic of chickens. Chicken, our hero in the war on hangovers. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. I am so done with living on media time. Not that I live on it that much anyway. I mean, I don't have a mobile phone or a cell phone or a smartphone. I only have a real dumb approaching on idiotic phone, one at my disposal in my home and the other at my office, an office that's right down the hallway from the studio where we are broadcasting right now, thanks to you, an office that's only a city block from my home. So the only time I'm not near a computer and a phone at the same time, the two things that make up a smartphone as I'm walking between these two places in that short two or three minute walk here and back home are some of my most enjoyable moments of my day exactly because I am not near a phone or a computer or the combination thereof. But what if there's an emergency and I need a phone on the street or wherever I am without a phone? True, but that kind of paranoia looks like the slippery slope to racial stereotypes and gun ownership or maybe that's just me, a person who is already paranoid of phones and computers, let alone guns. I I, I don't want to be on smartphone time where anybody at any moment can virtually interrupt me when I'm in the middle of a conversation that's taking place in reality. Sure, I could just turn it off, but you know what else I could do? Permanently turn it off by not getting one in the first place. I'm not going to be walking around and staring at that addictive mirror that I've lost far too many friends to due to overdoses. It's so sad seeing them staring alone in the corner with life bursting out all around them, not noticing, not looking up even as they cross the street, not seeing what's in front of them, literally surrendering their 
eyes to a machine and a timeline that consumes them. Timelines filled with the latest, most important breaking news, which everyone rushes to get the first word on. But within only days, if not hours, the latest outrage crumbles into nothing more than forgotten dust. The latest polls that have no impact whatsoever on elections months away, only revealing name recognition and not much more. The most recent tweet by a killer clown-in-chief whose provocations have left even his opponents hanging on his every taunt, distracted by Trump's framing of every issue and story that is made to rally his base, and I mean the his really base base, and then step back from in the near future when his basiest of bases have moved on to cheering his next insult that tricks his opponents into discussing his stupidity. I'm done with what is happening right now, the breaking now culture of always knowing what's happening at and in the moment without seeing the bigger picture. I want to see the forest, not just some singular tree. Unless something really gets broken, count me out of breaking news. Like if capitalism cracks or society crumbles, unless it really breaks, quit calling it breaking news. Did you hear? what Trump said today? No. And I'm going to do everything I can to not hear what he said today. I know it's nonsense. I know it's encouraging hatred and supporting white nationalism. There's a good chance it was racist or misogynist and more than likely expresses some hatred as Trump and all the Republican Party's electoral strategy is exploiting hatred and embracing white privilege while living in a world that believes in a mythical past of American exceptionalism and innocence that refuses to accept responsibility for slavery, or the fact that capitalism would have failed a long time ago if it wasn't for slavery. I'm done with all the smallest of small pinprick pictures of the world that the media focuses on, the minutiae, and then taking that minutiae out of context to speculate about it ad nauseum. As the world burns around them and they say nothing about the flames, I'm so over allowing the minute-by-minute media that only stops to linger on the trivial relative to the real challenges facing humanity in a world heading toward inevitable short-term societal collapse. I'm done with it because in all its momentary sleights of hand that keep distracting us, are keeping us all in in those disconnected virtual moments in that second contained and not free to take a step back or out to realize the outcome of the accumulation of all these moments and that's overarching reality that the media works hard from keeping us recognizing and what they don't want you to notice is this is hell this week's question from hell is what is the united states wi-fi password What is the United States Wi-Fi password? Alex, I know that you said it was, what is America's Wi-Fi password? But I did not want to get emails from people saying, you know, the the United States isn't the America, isn't America, you know, so I I wanted to change it. Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. All replies read on air during the third hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets a book we featured on last week's show by an author who will be in Evanston this Friday, September 6th. The book is How to Be an Anti-Racist, and the author is National Book Award-winning author Ibram X. Kendi. You can hear our interview from last week with Ibram by going to thisishell.com and searching on his last name, Kendi, K-E-N-D-I. This Friday, September 6th, Ibram will discuss his his new book, uh, this week's question from Hell Prize, How to Be an Anti-Racist at 7 p.m. in the Evanston Township High School Auditorium at 1600 
Dodge Avenue, 1600 Dodge Avenue in Evanston. Ibram will be interviewed by Marcus Campbell, the assistant superintendent and principal of Evanston Township High School. That's Ibram X. Kendi talking about how to be an anti-racist with ETHS assistant superintendent and principal Marcus Campbell Friday at 7 p.m. in the Evanston Township High School Auditorium at 1600 Dodge Avenue. You can find out more about this event at familyactionnetwork.net. Again, the question from Mel is, what is the United States Wi-Fi password? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, Holocaust capitalism is in its death spiral leading to its inevitable fascism. The Twittering machine's business model is addiction. And it's having a revolutionary impact on the way we write. What racism looks like in the workplace, in particular in healthcare, under the constraints of neoliberalism. The misrepresentations and divides over the Green New Deal are not only on the right. The left is having its own issues with the proposal. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin looks too closely at spiders, which may be creepy. We'll also have Rotten History listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what we've been doing on our weekly podcast exclusively for subscribers to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online and some others for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com when they click on support, as well as what's happening on up- upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Live from the United States, where property has more rights than people, this is hell. Late capitalism is having a real crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border, and that crisis is caused by attempts at managing the crisis that is late capitalism. Here to give us his perspective on what he sees happening at the border and in migrant detention centers that some are equating to concentration camps writer and member of Atlanta's Housing Justice League, Richard Hunsinger, posted the article at Cosmonaut titled Holocaust Capitalism. You can find that article at cosmonaut.blog. Richard is, uh, you can find out more about Richard's organization, the Housing Justice League, at housingjusticeleague.org. And you can follow Richard on Twitter at Dickofrenic, D-I-C-K-O-P-H-R-E-N-I-C. Welcome to This Is Hell, Richard. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. It's great to have you on the show. You write that today the left has come to a common acceptance that the detention camps in which migrants are incarcerated are concentration camps. Concentration camps are defined as a, as a place where a large number of peoples, especially political prisoners or members of persecuted uh, minorities, are deliberately imprisoned in a relatively small area with inadequate facilities, sometimes to provide forced labor or to await mass execution. Are the immigrants at the border, in your opinion, are they political prisoners? Is attempting to enter the United States a political act that turns potential immigrants into political prisoners? I would say that I think there is a component of political mediation uh, potential in the situation here. Uh, But what I like focus on in this article here is mostly sort of the overall geography of the movement of this nomadic proletariat population as a relative surplus population produced by uh, accumulation of capital in this sort of like imperial epic, uh, like global production process that we're in. 
What do you mean by surplus? Uh, what do you mean by surplus popula- population? Because I want to make sure that people understand the terms that you're going to be using throughout our conversation today. Yes, of course. So I'm referring generally to in Capital Volume One. Uh, Karl Marx talks about the general law of capitalist accumulation. And there is this discussion about how um, the greater the social wealth and functioning capital and the extent and energy of its growth, there's also the greater absolute mass of the proletariat and the productivity of its labor. And then it creates a greater, larger industrial reserve army, or in this case, a relative surplus population. And that comes about from sort of a sense of uh, when we talk about like how capital is created, we have to go to this sort of like origins of capitalism, which lie in uh, the example that Marx details in Capital Volume 1 is the primitive accumulation process, that's the term he gives it, uh, so-called primitive accumulation. And the historical process he lays out is the English example of the enclosure of the commons, which was in order to uh, take like what people had access to, their like means of subsistence, their proximity to their own like means of production and means of like social reproduction, uh, there had to be a violent and brutal uh, act of dispossessing them of their access to those things. And there's been a lot of other good uh, theoretical discussions that have advanced this theory, because um, in Capital Marx discusses this as being in the prehistory of capitalism. But uh, developments in the 20th and 21st centuries coming from Rosa Luxemburg, uh, and uh, David Harvey's accumulation by dispossession and Jackie Wong's racialized accumulation by dispossession uh, in her book, Carceral Capitalism, uh, aim to illustrate that this is actually an ongoing process that in all uh, cycles of like capital's accumulation, there must occur this sort of like base displacement where the capitalist or people who seek to appropriate the capital or like sources of value must forcibly uh, remove people from like their access to other like means of subsistence or like their access to that which they are laboring on in order to sell it back to them or like initiate the sort of like productive consumption of their own means of subsistence. You write about how uh, primitive accumulation is capitalism's original sin. Can we address capitalism? Can we in any way reform capitalism, if you will, without addressing that original sin of primitive accumulation? I don't think we can, because like that is sort of like the initiating point we have to understand where it comes from, that like capitalism and modern capitalism like have like absolutely some sort of like inherent sort of like violent origin and that it's not just a violent origin it's a violent ongoing process by which it is able to assert its dominance there must be this sort of like displacement that forms the base or infrastructure of capital accumulation so so how is capitalism's violence taking place at the u.s mexico border Okay, so there I wanted to focus on sort of, um, this is like an interesting uh, thing that I've been noticing too, where like there is this discussion where uh, 
as these get discussed as concentration camps, which I just, that's a fact. Um, like, as this gets discussed, uh, there seems to be a, an immediate conflation with fascism and immediate parallels with uh, Nazi Germany, which I think there are still distinct differences, though I think uh, there is a clear parallel trajectory emerging that we should not take lightly. And, but what I wanted to do is, uh, it occurred to me that these camps were not really functioning itself in, or originating within like a specific function of exterminationist logic, that they were actually like fitting quite neatly uh, into the United States' own like reinvestment into its own means of production and its own like uh, normal capital flows. And uh, so what I talked about there is like, uh, there's this, primitive accumulation, these other like forms of accumulation by dispossession, which are facilitated by like these uh, large like regional hemisphere trade deals like NAFTA and USMCA, like the new uh, one that Trump is proposing that are formed by, you know, like multinational corporations protecting their interests in the region, uh, like free trade only serves like these large like corporate entities. And that's just like further like concentrates the like capital of the entire hemisphere into like smaller and smaller hands. So, and it further alienates the sort of like labor populations of Latin American states from the, that which they're producing. Uh, so these, and this is enforced by like brutal intervention into the like social, political and economic affairs of these Latin American states. So as these like are more and more, like uh, very disparate climates of like social, political, and economic instability, of course people are going to have to leave, especially as like climate change is starting to affect their agricultural production. Uh, and now like they're moving towards the core where there are greater incentives offered for labor than in the periphery of this region. And so like the, it's constantly producing this surplus population at the same time as domestic populations in the U.S., the U.S. citizenry is starting to experience like a lot more downward social mobility. Um, the like income inequality gaps are widening, and that's producing this sort of like fractured reactive consciousness. And like many political leaders are offering this sort of like solution of like economic nationalism and seeking to uh, focus very much on the lives of Americans and Americans first and whatnot. So it, it becomes like, as they've relied on, they said like the, the rich have relied on these cheaper labor populations that the nomadic proletariat here as the migrants have provided for them for a while, but now it's starting to come in conflict with its immediate political goals and how it retains power domestically. So they, these camps uh, are starting to erect themselves as a way to capture this relative surplus population that is the migrant and still be able to profit off of it through the privatization mechanism of it because 72% of these camps uh, or 72% of incarcerated migrants are held in privately owned camps. 
You write the old rallying cry of American jobs for American workers is also a bipartisan talking point, revealing the reactionary one-party state that has always dominated the U.S. working class. In the case of the concentration camps on the border then, we should not be fooled by either party's posturing in addressing the matter. The reactionary one-party state that has always dominated the U.S. working class. Why do you hear that in American Jobs for American Workers. How is pro-U.S. worker rhetoric reactionary? It's reactionary in that, like, these are ways that the sort of, like, bourgeois state apparatus seeks to protect itself. Like, um, this is, like, another, like, uh, Marxist point, too, where it's just, like, uh, under a capitalist society and a capitalist mode of production, the state is uh, merely like a dictatorship with the bourgeoisie. So in this case, it's like, and we've seen this like many times between Republicans and Democrats, there is various like surface level differences in positions that parties hold, but roughly they have the same interest. And it is the interest of like the rich, the capitalist within society. And I find it interesting that they are both sort of gravitating towards this economic nationalism, which is a term that um, the likes of Steve Bannon is very much a fan of. And among Democrats, you, I, it, Elizabeth Warren explicitly used this term uh, in describing sort of her approach to this. And it's, it's a mechanism by which they can retain power over a domestic population by reinserting this sort of like nationalistic patriotism and like sense of self and nationhood that is needed in order to sustain it because like the proletariat like the working class really does not have a country you write social um, democratic uh, policy prescriptions for capitals crises and growing racial and class conflict is gaining traction on the right. For example, Tucker Carlson on his Fox News show now engages with critiques of free market capitalism previously foreign to U.S. conservatives, even inviting a past guest on our show, Angela Nagel, a so-called leftist cultural critic, on as a guest. The manifesto of the El Paso shooter similarly criticizes the failures of American capitalism while supporting social democratic reforms such as universal basic income and universal health care to mitigate class conflict while also advocating for an increasingly popular ethno-nationalism. How vulnerable is democratic socialism to ethno-nationalism, even fascism, and how can social democrats keep fascism from co-opting social democracy? Well, I think it's actually quite vulnerable in the U.S., uh, mostly because of the fact that like, we are a like, nation or a state with a uh, deeply ingrained like institutions of white supremacy and the reason i think that social democracy is very vulnerable to this is that it is fundamentally reformist uh in a way that does not fully contest the like origins of capital and capital accumulation and it is at heart a national a nationalist project so even if you get some of these reforms like medicare for all single-payer health care you're not fundamentally going to be able to address the elements within those coalitions that are coming in that could be hostile to migrants and like the borders. Like I, I know Angela Nagel wrote this piece called the left case against open borders, which really just like foregoes any chances of like 
any sort of like internationalism or solidarity with the global proletariat. And it's susceptible as well, because as you see from things like the El Paso shooter manifesto, as well as like Tucker Carlson, the right is starting to very much like make these same critiques of uh, like American capitalism and its excesses. And that should be a big like alarm ringing for any American leftist uh, because it shows like where you are very vulnerable to co-optation. Like my nightmare really is that like uh, Bernie Sanders gets elected and we still have these migrant concentration camps and border crisis because fundamentally like uh, if you become the representative of the capitalist state, uh, even if you promise to be on the side of the workers, everyone, when these same workers threaten that economic, social, and political instability of the state, like you, because of your position in this uh, political office, are going to be forced to defend the economic status quo of the area. And that will become defending the national project, which will play right into a sort of like fascist reaction as these problems are not able to be solved by U.S. institutional politics. So for what the left could do to be uh, mitigating this is that I write sort of, um, I did not go into detail here as well, but I think to a degree some of these reforms uh, would be beneficial. Like I'm not going to like turn my nose up at single payer health care. I think it's incredibly important things that we should be looking for, Medicare for all. But at the same time, like, as we exert this influence on the U.S. institutional political sphere, and we see it starting to capture our interests, like the left at large within America needs to start preparing to figure out like where its politics can sort of like make a rupture with this procedural left and continue pushing the conversation towards the like uh, a real like politics that can confront capital and provide an alternative to this uh, ethno-nationalist capitalism. You mentioned how national, the Nationalist Project must conceal a reality in order to sustain its fantasy. What must the Nationalist Project conceal in order to sustain its fantasy? So this is where like, the Nationalist Project, in order to sustain its fantasy, needs to uh, create some sort of Uh, other as like this object of like uh, a symbol of like lack for the national subject by which it can uh, see itself in that it is not this other. And that that's kind of drawing on some psychoanalysis a little bit, but it comes to the fact that like uh, it's, it needs to disengage like people's understandings of its international economic syntheses and ties that it has uh, with its social ties of organization like kinship and citizenry. Like it needs to do that in order to make people still believe that America is this sort of like self-sustaining, like standalone power within the world when in reality we are entirely reliant upon the violent extraction of resources on a global scale. Like we are an imperial power. We have like asserted dominion over this hemisphere and done it ruthlessly and violently for like centuries now, ever since the Monroe Doctrine. And uh, it only works 
that we are able to see ourselves as this like citizenry if we are able to see ourselves separate from those that we can point to and say, you do not belong here. So, uh, Richard, uh, we're speaking with writer Richard Hunsinger, also an activist. He has an article at Cosmonaut called Holocaust Capitalism. You write about uh, how uh, forming amongst the anti-corporate strains of U.S. politics is an understanding of the mutual share of responsibility that Republicans and Democrats possess in their inability to counter the tide of corporate influence, instead taking part in the full transformation of the state into a model of realization for capital. What happens to a government like the United States, a representative democracy, when it becomes a model of realization for capital? And what would you say to somebody who argues it always was that neoliberalism and today's age of late capitalism hasn't changed anything? I would say, like, uh, they are right very much uh, to an extent. Like, when we talk about this transformation, or when I mention it, I'm just saying uh, about, like, a continuation and sort of, like, a further realization of a process that uh, is tied to the history of the origins of industrial capitalism. Because capitalism has always proceeded in its development through the state form. And the state has always been a very important apparatus for the uh, continuation of capitalism's development, because that is the state under what we could call a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie becomes the apparatus where the bourgeoisie or a national bourgeoisie is able to assert its interests and hold a monopoly on the assertion of its interest through the like use of legitimized force or violence. Um, yeah, but like what I try to point to with this privatization and talking about this further as a model of realization for capital is that like in the advent of neoliberalism, what you do see is like very much like a ramping up of this process and a sort of the uh, the curtain coming down on how this functions. Like it's very much a natural outgrowth of capitalist development. Like this would be the end conclusion. And what I try to point to with that is how it's like, you see it very clearly in the concentration camps and that so many of uh, migrants uh, that are detained uh, and incarcerated there are detained in these private camps, which are basically just like channeling funding through like government contracts, like a uh, core civic, which is formerly the corrections corporation of America and geo group, both uh, like, Earn a combined $985 million from government contracts alone in 2017. And then there's all these other like parties at play too, because even privatized within the camps are all of these various like functions, which I'm sure that they are like obligated to by their contract to provide. Uh, and it's anywhere from just like healthcare, telephone services, shampoo products that have to be produced. And of course they're all terrible products and like they, I'm sure there's like not a lot of care and attention going into that stuff, but it's funneling through these things so that like banks that invest finance capital into them, companies that like run their products through them, tech companies that run like data projects that they're testing out and developing through them. And the corporations that run these companies are basically using the relative surplus population that, uh, the nomadic proletariat, the migrants are here as uh, a sort of like channel through which to further realize capital. 
Am I going too far, or does this sound a lot like the antebellum financialization of slavery? I would say I'd have to like read up more on that topic to say, but uh, could you elaborate on it a little bit more for uh, me? Just that uh, it, they were selling on Wall Street. Uh, they were commodifying slaves. There, it was possible to invest and make fa- financial investments within slaves on Wall Street. So it just started it, when I read that. I just started thinking about how much and, and the amount of money that it that there's a, a price put on each bed and on each person who is put into these facilities that is an agreed upon price by Congress that these private institutions get. It just sounds so much like pricing human bodies. It just sounds so much like slavery. Oh, it entirely is. Like, uh, I, I do know, like, uh, I believe I've read elsewhere that, like, some of these migrants are actually induced into, like, forced labor of some things, but I don't know if that is a significant level enough yet to say that that is like the sole intent or a significant like source of value. But no, that sounds very analogous. You also write that left projects organizing support on a grassroots level to support these reformist initiatives must remain conscious of the limitations of the nationalist project. Whether there is a claim to reject American nationalism or not, this is the sphere of political action these projects occupy. Is grassroots organizing an exercise in American nationalism? And if not organizing in the realm of American nationalism, where can those who want systemic changes, where can they organize outside of American nationalism? Well, one, I don't think, I think that organizing outside of American nationalism means organizing with an increasingly international consciousness regarding the like working class and like proletariat on a global scale and finding ties with those projects and those efforts that are happening throughout the world with your own organizing and developing that consciousness with everybody that you're organizing with. Um, I, I would not say that grassroots at like organizing and work is inherently an American nationalist project. Like I would say the sort of organizing for reformist initiatives of a nationalist project, such as like Medicare for all, you know, these would be like state reforms. Those constitute like very much acting within a nationalist project. Um, But like, it's about further developing this internationalism that is coming out on the left, which is a developing very well. Um, I know that, like even the DSA is being more conscious of this as well, but it's important to like continue to reassert this and figure out how to start forging these ties and this real solidarity between like our domestic proletariat and the nomadic proletariat of like the migrants that are incarcerated here and starting to build coalitions between these groups because we have to like the only way to like abolish the border here would be to sort of like uh, continue to push that there like really is materially like no border except that which is enforced by the state. You uh, mentioned uh, well, actually, I guess that's the bigger question I want to ask. Can, can the can the United States? de-neoliberalize? Can the world, because, uh, and more importantly, how much would any process or any actual de-neoliberalized world 
how much would that solve the current crises we're experiencing under late capitalism? Mm. Well, here's the thing with uh, neoliberalism that I think is important to point out. While I think it is like a useful term to kind of like better characterize like the more recent like epic of like uh, capitalism that we are experiencing, I do think we need to be careful in like making sure that we're not sort of asserting it as a sort of like distinct mode of production or type of society from this, because we have to be very clear that like what we are experiencing now, what we are living in is the product of like capitalist society uh, continuing to assert itself in the social relations that it needs in order to constantly reproduce itself. It is this, constantly homogenizing process of social relations that uh, create capital uh, and form it on a global level. So I, I, what was the second part of the question you asked? <laughs> Again, I'm looking on to the next question already. Uh, what, what, I was, yeah. what I was asking was, how much would that solve the current crises we're experiencing in capitalism if we did neoliberalize, if that's even possible to de-neoliberalize? Mm -hmm. I don't know about like solving the current crisis so much as that we have to directly confront them and solutions will only present themselves through action and confrontation. So yeah. are the detention centers then an outcome of poor crisis management during late capitalism? Could the crisis that is late capitalism be managed better or is any crisis management in late capitalism going to have harmful effects? Mm. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say it's like poor crisis management because I think this makes perfect sense, especially with like the direct, like the amount of like concentration camps like that are present within United States history and like forcible detention of like ethnic groups like that's like very much a part of U.S. history kind of baked into it. It's not really an abnormal practice and it's not an abnormal practice of like large uh, states on a global scale. Like the, this happens very much when they're starting to have these uh, like immigration problems that they cannot solve like with because the when I was talking earlier about saying like the working class, the proletariat has no country, it's because it is this sort of like universally produced subject by capital accumulation. Um, when we talk about that sort of like base or infrastructure of capital accumulation being a displacement, we're also talking about that like this displacement, this ongoing act as such creates a continually like larger sort of like surplus population. And if I could point to, this is in um, Capital Volume 1, uh, Marx says, uh, the same causes which develop the expansive power of capital also develop the labor power at its disposal. The relative mass of the Industrial Reserve Army thus increases with the potential energy of wealth. But the greater this reserve army in proportion to the active labor army, the greater is the mass of a consolidated surplus population whose misery is an, inver is an inverse ratio to the amount of torture it has to undergo in the form of labor. The more extensive, finally, the pauperized sections of the working class and the industrial reserve army, the greater is official pauperism. This is the absolute general law of capitalist accumulation. So, like, it's 
going to be as capital accumulates, we will be constantly producing like a greater and ever larger sort of like immiserated, dispossessed, uh, like proletariat on a global scale. And that is, that becomes sort of like the conditions for like who must be organized, what must happen and like how to combat it. Is what we are seeing then at the U.S.-Mexico border in any sense a, an uprising, if you will, against capitalism's dependence upon the misery of others in order for it to succeed? Is this the revolution against capitalism's utter dependence upon the lowest wage workers so the richest can accumulate wealth? Yeah, I would say that it's like maybe not so much a like conscious revolution, but itself being like a process or like a result of this sort of like uh, ongoing contradiction between like the free movement of capital across borders and the similarly restricted movement of labor populations. Like that is just like an immediate global contradiction that this displays uh, like perfectly. It is a real just like picture of like that which is not adding up and it's that sort of like disengagement of societies like organize or of like a nations or metropolitan societies like organizations of uh kinship and citizenship disengaging with the international economic uh syntheses that actually constitute it so like i think what we're seeing too is a, a like sort of a global like revolution against the concept of nationalism and that in turn like fueling the nationalist reaction against it which is what plays into the sort of like fascist reaction so is any uprising that is happening today about the fact that capital has more freedom than people and if that is the case to what extent do we actually realize that within say the mainstream political debate does everybody have i'm trying to figure out does everybody have a sense of this that we that capital has more freedom than people and we're rising up against it or do we have are, are we utterly aware of it if that makes uh, sense i think like certain no, yeah, I think a lot of the American left is like very aware of this. I think that contradiction is one that is discussed very openly by people that pay attention to the migrant camp situation. Um, but I think like perhaps to like maybe an American public at large, that is not uh, very conscious. And you're definitely not going to see that discussion happening in a U.S. institutional political sphere, which is just like moving more and more towards fascism in this sort of like uh, varying levels of consciousness of that process, like in the U.S. like institutional political sphere and within like the like state establishment and apparatus, there are varying levels of just like unconscious sort of like emergence of fascism. Though there are certainly within like right wing spheres like very conscious fascists, uh, but they have yet to really like fully sees a power on this, but like this moment where you start seeing this like very uh, irrationality of that contradiction, you know, like global free movement of capital, uh, but restricted movement of labor and like a, an imperialist uh, nation that has um, relied upon like this cheap, like nomadic proletariat for like cheaper labor um, for so long, starting to like 
reject that, incarcerate that, and turn back towards its domestic labor population, despite the fact that it's been deindustrializing and de-skilling this domestic labor population for decades, is producing this sort of like irrationality that moves from like uh, a sort of like conscious and like sensible like investment into the society's own means of production, more and more so into this like investment into society's own like means of self-destruction, which is like where you start to see fascism like really forming. Like uh, I like uh, following um, Paul Virilio uh, via Deleuze and Guattari's discussion of fascism and micropolitics as this sort of like emergence of the suicidal state. Just a couple more questions for you, Richard. Uh, You write that considering the origin of these displacements that have created the nomadic proletariat, we must take into account the long history of U.S. military and political intervention in the affairs of Latin American states, which lays a foundation for current waves of migration, Latin American intervention, the intentional and violent arrangements of political power in those countries for the benefit of U.S. interests is a history with a clear end goal, and that has been the dominance over the claim to ownership of surplus value created in production by multinational corporations that have in turn enforced monocultural agricultural production, super exploitation, and further alienation of those laborers from that which they produce. In order for us to address the border and the problems that are faced, people are facing at the border right now, at the U.S.-Mexico border, do we have to confront American exceptionalism and innocence? Does confronting the issues at the border mean admitting that the American myth that so many on the right believe in it is wrong. Oh, yeah, totally. Like, American exceptionalism needs to be, like, very much dismantled in the hearts and minds of the U.S. population. And we need to be constantly challenging and, like, uncovering, like, efforts we see uh, to, like, destabilize Latin American countries for the, like, U.S. interests. Um, you know, like, very good efforts in this, like, or like a development of this consciousness was uh, seen this year, I think, in like the very like easy like push against uh, what was quite obviously, you know, like the U.S. backing like a very like not popular uh, coup attempt within Venezuela uh, with like clear economic interests at play. Um, more and more people discussing and analyzing the history of like Latin American intervention. Like I think something like within the last like half century there have been like 50 plus like u.s like interventions in latin american states or like various like coups supported by the united states in those countries so yeah it's it's really important to constantly be challenging the narrative that the u.s has of itself one last question for you richard we have been speaking with writer and activist richard hunsinger who posted the article at cosmonaut titled Holocaust Capitalism. Richard is a member of Atlanta's Housing Justice League. You can find out more about the Housing Justice League at housingjusticeleague.org. You can find his article, Holocaust Capitalism, at cosmonaut.blog. And you can follow Richard on Twitter at dickophrenic, D-I-C-K-O-P-H-R-E-N-I-C, which is an awesome Twitter handle. One last question for you, Richard. And as we do with each and every one of our guests, it's the question from 
from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write, the transition to fascism is seamless because the progression is inherent in capitalist crisis in the U.S., where the capitalist mode of production is so highly developed with heavily ingrained institutions of white supremacy. Capital's tornado reaches an intensity and magnitude of crisis to make the qualitative shift to the black hole of fascism's suicidal state. The movement is not yet complete, and we may yet have time to prevent a new American holocaust. Its death will only be real if we act. What would a new American holocaust look like? Uh, I do not want to picture that or envision it because I do not want to like, like, first I will just say this, that it's just, um, I think that, uh, when we talk about the Holocaust with this in relation to it, it's that like, we need to sort of understand that the extermination logic that emerged out of Nazi Germany itself was like a part of like specific set of like, material conditions that we are a bit closer, I think, than we are comfortable with uh, to replicating to an extent because people are already dying and being murdered by guards in these camps, people already being like shot and killed by uh, CBP on the border before they even get into these camps. Like, and you've got like right wingers and people all over the place, like calling for their like, removal, like violent expulsion from the country. Like it's, we often sometimes view the like Holocaust of Nazi Germany as some sort of like singular historical event. And I think we're sort of missing the ways in which this is quite reproducible by uh, other societies, because I would say like the United States itself too, in its own history of like, settler colonialism and like in the manifest destiny period has a very much a logic of exterminationism sort of like in its core of like how it addresses crises. And here, like we're seeing it turn into this very seamlessly because it's part of this reaction. It's reverting back to its own sort of like, violent reassertion of its own power here. And uh, like my nightmare as well as that too is just that like if we get, if Bernie Sanders gets elected and things don't improve, but there is more and more support for these like social democratic reforms and this uh, like sort of like idea of like a socialism, then like that paves the way very much for like an even more intense backlash uh like an even more intense fascist reaction if people embrace the sort of uh like socialism or like only on a nationalist scale but reject the more progressive tendencies of like a socialist movement then they will so that perfectly paves the way for like an actual like national socialist to emerge and for the exterminationism of the u.s to just accelerate so i am deeply worried about this situation. Um, I don't really have a lot of faith in the U.S. institutional political sphere to address this. I think a lot about um, Barack Obama's promise back in 2008, I, yeah, 2008, to close Gitmo, and that is still open. So it's like it's very much outside of the hands of 
whoever you elect as the head of state. And it's honestly disgusting to me that they're all using it as a talking point right now on the debate stage. Like, I, uh, I just can't. <laughs> Richard, I really appreciate you being on the show this week. And last Saturday night, I appeared live on stage on this guy's show called the Michael Brooks uh, Show here in Chicago. It's, from, it's out of Brooklyn. But I just wanted to tell you this one thing I overheard uh, in the lobby beforehand amongst all these lefty-type people who were talking to each other. I overheard this one quote, and I thought it was so incredibly adorable that I wanted to share it with you. I heard this guy say... That's when I was like, wow, I never knew I was a Marxist. I thought that was the cutest thing in the world. <laughs> guy had Wait, no who? <laughs> Some random guy in the audience. Just all the, I just overheard him say, wow, that, that's when I was like, wow, I never knew I was a Marxist. Like he just woke up to the fact. I just thought it was a fascinating thing. <laughs> Richard, thank you so much for being on the show this week. I really appreciate it, and we hope to have you on again soon. Thank you very much, and good luck with your organization as well, the uh, Atlanta Housing Justice Project. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right, take care. Manufacturing Dissent since 1996. This is Hell. Join me today, shortly after the show is over, for the closing of This Is Art 2019, our annual art show that opens every July during our annual listener appreciation party. If you missed the party, come see the art. If you were at the party, see the art one last time and meet some of the artists whose work is on display. That's the This Is Art 2019 closing party. At Second Story Studios Art Gallery, the gallery we share a space with above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. That's today from 2 p.m. to 7 p.m. Hey, Alex, are we still are we still on air? Is that still working? Alex, yeah, are yeah, you yeah. still working? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're still on. Okay. Everything's, everything's working. All right. Pretty impressive so far. I was going to put the over under at about 70 minutes and we're at 65 right now. At the publisher's webpage for our next guest's book on social media, it starts in surrealist artist Paul Clay's The Twittering Machine, the birdsong of a diabolical machine, acts as bait to lure humankind into a pit of damnation. And that's the title of Richard Seymour's new book we'll be discussing in a moment, The Twittering Machine, and social media is as diabolical as Clay depicts. What Richard also sees in The Twittering Machine is a chronophage, a monster that eats time, like the one he described squatting insectoid on top of the corpus clock in Cambridge that mechanically turns the wheel and snaps its jaws to consume each second. It's a virus, an addiction, a pest. The twittering world is us, and it's having as revolutionary of an impact on writing as movable type, according to Richard. We'll dig deep on social media when we have the return of Richard Seymour, who is a political writer and broadcaster from Northern Ireland, who writes regularly for Salvage, which you can find at salvage.zone. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In 1888, 121 years ago, the body of Mary Ann Nichols was found in the street not far from a hospital in the Whitechapel district of of London's poverty-stricken East End, so rotten history is clearly back. Police on the scene immediately summoned a doctor who examined the body and found large cuts in the throat and abdomen with a surprisingly small loss of blood, and we've shifted gears into creepy rotten history, apparently. As investigators examined the grisly details, suspicion landed first on a local shoemaker known as 
leather apron who happened to be Jewish, and the local press had a field day with anti-Semitic stereotypes, which is weird because on Twitter, Leather Apron 69 is a follower of At This Is Hell Radio, and it must be a reference to the original Leather Apron because in their bio they describe themselves as pro-Semite. But the case against the shoemaker fell apart after he provided a convincing alibi. Namely, 19th century France was, France was incredibly anti-Semitic, and they regularly blamed random Jewish people for the most heinous of crimes without any uh, evidence whatsoever. I should say Britain, not France. Um, in the ensuing weeks, as the inquest into Nichols' murder continued, several other women were found to have been killed in a roughly similar way and in similar circumstances, all in the overcrowded and desperately poor Whitechapel area where most of them had worked as prostitutes. And I'm wondering why it took me so long to realize this bit of rotten history is about Jack the Ripper. Police struggled in vain to find the killer, and after other suspects were arrested and released, the press and public came to the ascribe the murders to a mysterious character called Jack the Ripper, but the crimes remain unsolved to this day, and after more than a century, the documented facts have been confused with legend until the two have become almost indistinguishable. In other words, the history of Jack the Ripper is like all of Western history, documented facts confused with legend to create a fiction. In Rotten History, 1986, 33 years ago, in the Black Sea near the port of Novorossiysk, in what was then the Soviet Union, a Soviet passenger ship known as the SS Admiral Nakimov. <laughs> I love that name. Uh, carrying a full load of vacationers to the resort city of Sochi, encountered the Pyotr Vasev, a large Soviet merchant ship carrying barley and oats from Canada. And yes, we did get through that first sentence of a rotten history hit without anything awful happening, which is almost unprecedented in the history of rotten history. The pilot of the cruise ship noticed that the two vessels appeared to be on a collision course, and the rotten begins. But thanks for waiting until the second second and second sentence, Ronaldo. The cruise ship radioed the freighter and was assured that the ships would not collide, but the freighter failed to change course, and in spite of desperate last-minute maneuvers, when the collision seemed imminent, it plowed into the Soviet passenger ship's starboard side at about 10 p.m. in the evening to, as cruise vacationers aboard the vessel gaped in helpless astonishment. Gaped, I tell you, gaped. The freighter suffered little damage, but the gash in the Admiral Nakamov <laughs> cracks me up. Uh, passenger ship was so huge that it sank in just seven minutes. It totally sounds made up, that name, before lifeboats could be deployed. Of the 1,234 people aboard, 359 passengers and 64 crew members were killed. Soviet news agencies waited two days before reporting the accident. The captains of both ships were later found guilty of criminal negligence and were each sent, sent to prison for 15 years and that's some pretty rotten history this week's question from hell is what is the united states wi-fi password what is the united states wi-fi password leave your response now at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio all replies right on air during the next hour of this week's show this week's winner gets a book we featured on last week's show by an author who will be in evanston this friday september 6th the book is how to be an anti-racist and the author is national book award winning author Ibram X. Kendi 
You can hear our interview from last week with Ibram by going to thisishell.com and searching on his last name, Kendi, K-E-N-D-I. This Friday, Saturday, or this Friday, September 6th, Ibram will discuss his new book. This week's question from Hell Prize, How to Be an Anti-Racist at 7 p.m. in the Evanston Township High School Auditorium at 1600 Dodge Avenue. Ibram will be interviewed by Marcus Campbell, the assistant superintendent and principal at Evanston Township High School. That's this Friday, 7 p.m. in the Evanston Township High School Auditorium at 1600 Dodge Avenue. See Ibram Kendi talk about how to be an anti-racist. Find out more about this event at familyactionnetwork.net. Again, the question from hell is, what is the United States Wi-Fi password? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the next hour of this week's show and see if you won Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the Twittering Machine's business model is addiction, and it's having a revolutionary impact on how we write, what racism looks like in the workplace, in particular in healthcare under the constraints of neoliberalism. The misrepresentations and divides over the Green New Deal are not only on the right, the left is having its own issues with the proposal. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin looks too closely at spiders, which is really creepy and weird. We'll also have listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what we've been doing on our weekly podcast exclusively for subscribers to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing the show online and others for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com when they click on support. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of the show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry, live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. Social media is an addiction, and that's exactly its business model. It wants to consume our time and do it freely. It's also creating a revolution in writing that's comparable to the revolution caused by movable type. Here to take us on a tour of the Twittering machine, returning to This Is Hell, political writer and broadcaster Richard Seymour is author of the new book, The Twittering Machine. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Richard. Oh, thank you for having me. Richard has appeared on This Is Hell several times. His most recent appearance was back in February when we spoke with him about his article, Brexit and the White Working Class, which you can find on Richard's own Patreon page, patreon.com slash Richard Seymour WTF. You can follow Richard on Twitter at Leninology, and you can find out more about Richard at leninology.co.uk. You quote historian Melvin Kranzberg saying, technology is neither good nor bad nor new. Neutral. If all technology is either good nor uh, nor is neither good nor bad nor neutral, is it not say Twitter that is evil or Facebook that is evil? But us, do we blame technology for causing evils that are not the fault of technology, but are problems of our own? Uh, we can do. Um, that's uh, that's the moral panic style, isn't it? So. Uh, if we have problems in our society, um, we can say, well, there's this one factor that's responsible, and if we deal with it, um, then we'll be fine. That's a very reassuring uh, way to think about the world, um, and that's how moral panics tend to work. But um, one of the things we can say about technologies, or indeed about any aspect of a social uh, reality, is that um, does it does it magnify or potentiate the bad stuff? Does it um, take hold of 
tendencies that are lamentable and make them worse. And that's the uh, critical question about the Twittering machine, about this new form of writing um, that we're all doing now. Because, I mean, if you think about it, uh, we're all writing more than we ever have before in human history. You know, I mean, uh, when in human history people spent their time in toilet breaks writing, uh, on their screens, on their phones? Um, when have they spent their time on tube bricks writing? You know, it used to be your practice of writing might involve, oh, I keep a diary or I, I write letters or something like that. It's now ceaseless. It's every day. It's nonstop. Uh, it's when you get up in the morning. It's uh, for some people, it's during their parties, it's during uh, social meetings, according to some surveys, for some people during sex. I mean, this is, this is the thing that's taking over our lives now. So um, the critical question is, in what way, uh, what, what, what sort of future are we writing ourselves into? Now, as, uh, as I think you already know, um, the book sort of argues that we are more being written than we are writing. And that possibly sounds like a complicated argument, but it really isn't. We spend, on average, globally, about 135 minutes per day on various social media platforms, writing and so on. And that's quite a lot of time. And if you were to average that out over the average life, which uh, uh, in planetary terms is about 71 years, that's about 50,000 hours um, that uh, we're spending. Um, quite a lot of time, which could be devoted to any project. You could be doing anything. You could be learning to play a new instrument. You could be mastering a new trade, anything you like. Um, but instead, we're giving our time to this machine. Now, uh, time on this machine is very carefully written. Um, so, for example, um, if you um, uh, look at a computer screen, uh, if you look at the screen on your phone, you might see a, a folder, you might see an app, but you're not really seeing any, any of these things. These are just ideal visual representations of really complicated systems of writing, um, starting with the digital writing that creates computer code, uh, the software writing, the JavaScript, all of that stuff, layer upon layer of writing. And what we do, then do is we um, sort of add our own layer. Um, but we're adding on the basis of very carefully and strictly written protocols and algorithms which shape how we can write to one another and how we can interact. And you know how it is if you go on Twitter, if you go on Facebook, there's certain preconditions, you know. On Twitter, 280 characters. Um, there's certain types of content you can share. There's certain um, ways in which you can interact. You can like, you can retweet. Uh, you can have a profile picture. You can have a, a, a self-description, etc. These are the um, protocols, and they're set up along the lines of celebrity, along the lines of competition, along the lines of hierarchy, along the lines of status. And that... If you think about the fact that we do spend roughly 135 minutes a day um, on these things, that's our social life now. You know, we spend more time interacting with one another on these various devices than we do face to face. So this is our social life that's being rewritten for us. We are literally being written into existence in a way. Um, and so we should pay close attention to how that's happening, because 
in the whole history of writing, it's uh, been alphabetic or it's been print writing. Um, digital writing and its dominance is something entirely new. How much could that change the way that we write? You point out in your book about how we've left alphabetic writing behind by employing uh, emojis. How much is it possible that, say, in a century, uh, the English language for English readers might be indecipherable because of its new ways of using writing and images in its construction? Not necessarily. I, I mean, I, I, I certainly think it's possible, but that's not um, something that I think, I mean, certainly I wouldn't be overly concerned about it. Um, the thing about it is alphabetic writing, the, the, the virtue of it, um, I mean, it has its limitations, but the virtue of it is that it is phonetic. Um, it enables us to represent sounds, uh, speech sounds. Emojis and so on are um, uh, supplementary. They convey tonal information, register, things like that, um, that would, in a face-to-face -face conversation, be um, uh, immediately apparent on one's face or in the way one holds oneself, one's body language. So it conveys aspects of language that aren't strictly linguistic. They're paralinguistic. Um, so I'm not really worried about that so much. I'm more worried about um, the fact that um, it's going to change how we interact. It's going to change how we live um, in ways that we don't necessarily have any say over because this is the crucial thing. Any bit of written code, any program, any software, all that is is automated human purpose. Any algorithm, has somebody has come up with uh, what should be done uh, what should be said, what should be thought about a particular subject, and they have tried to automate it with written code. And uh, obviously, the more layers of writing you get, uh, and the more elaborately structured it is, the harder it is to reverse. You can't just press delete. You know, it is hard written into our society. Now, all societies are predicated on a hierarchy of writing. You know, and pre previously in the old sort of traditional class societies, um, you might have the Bible or a religious text, or uh, in modern democratic societies, you might have a constitution, um, something like that at the top, the authoritative text. Well, obviously that still persists to some extent, and obviously we still have these um, big written infrastructures like education systems, um, mass media, and so on. But Increasingly, um, these digital systems are changing the hierarchy. So um, one way in which you can measure that is if you think about how moral panics work today, and we, would, we started off by talking about moral panics. Well, moral panics um, used to happen very much from above, as it were. They would come via big media outlets, via the state, you know, uh, and that can still happen. Um, it would come via police and other government, government authorities, but now it can be triggered by aggregated bursts of excitement on the social industry. You know, you can um, trigger a panic or uh, a surge of excitement or something over a subject or over a person um, very quickly. And sometimes if you're uh, targeting someone, um, you can get the police involved or you can get SWAT team to turn up at their house, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so that a moral panic now isn't something that has to be orchestrated uh, by powerful figures, 
the powerful can take uh, hold of it and they can leverage it for their advantage, but it can now come from below, as it were, from surges of excitement on these platforms. Um, and I discuss in the book numerous examples of where individuals have been targeted for no particularly good reason and driven to self-harm, suicide, you know, purely because of the way in which online surges of excitement um, and uh, hit and so on work. So th th this is just to give you some um, sense of how uh, a rewritten society could start to look very different. Why wasn't the impact of social media considered before those platforms were launched? Uh, what what does that say to you about our relationship with technology, with capitalism? Do do we and well, let's just stop right there. Why wasn't that impact considered before these platforms were launched? Well, partly there's an issue of public agnotology. You know, it's um, the deliberate cultivation of ignorance on a whole range of subjects. You know, the classic example is how the tobacco industry cultivates ignorance. But you can talk about, you know, the fossil fuel industry as well. Um, well, the big tech uh, giants don't want people to know too much about what they do. Um, and certainly nanotechnology and all the rest of it, they have um, a lot of uh, investments that they don't particularly want the public to understand because then you run the risk of uh, democratic curtailment, you run the risk of consumer pressure, you run the risk of government intervention, uh, all sorts of problems. So the more you can keep what you're doing uh, uh, relatively secret, a commercial secret, the better for you. So that's one thing. The other thing is, I think we should not overestimate how planned these systems were. They kind of evolved um, purely through the search for profit. Um, you know, like if you take something like Facebook, Facebook currently looks like a completed entity. Like, um, I mean, it's a mess, actually, but it's, it appears to have some sort of uh, coherent structure. But most of um, its sort of features and protocols were taken from other platforms um, and adapted. Um, like, take the like button, for example. The like button... Uh, has universalized across all the platforms because it makes user engagement go absolutely bananas. Um, it multiplies it by tens, by fifties, by hundreds, you know. Um, and it was responsible for a huge surge of profitability. Um, and, you know, they uh, sort of gradually came to realize that there might be something addictive about this. And they started to write books saying, oh, my God, this is addictive. You know, maybe if you can reorganize your relationship with your customers as an addictive relationship, they'll keep coming back to you. Uh, and, um, you know, there was this theory that addiction was based on dopamine boosts so that every time you saw notifications or every time you saw positive feedback uh, or social validation, uh, you would get a little uh, dopamine hit and you would get a high, you'd feel happy, et cetera, et cetera. And there's numerous books coming out of Silicon Valley based on this theory, which, by the way, is a nonsense theory. That's not how addiction works. It's not even how dopamine works. Dopamine doesn't give you any kind of high at all. But um, essentially, this uh, I'm just explaining that this is a sort of post facto 
uh, rationalization for business strategies that they adopted uh, in an experimental ad hoc kind of way. And they now make it appear as if they, you know, had some great insight and, you know, they knew what they were doing. They kind of did. They kind of didn't. And uh, we're we're now in a situation where we can begin to see because this twittering machine is a snapshot of an evolving techno-political regime. Uh, it's not fixed. It will have new features in the future. It will incorporate augmented reality. It will be linked to smart city systems, which I think you probably know about. Um, and so it will change and it will require a lot more data from us, a lot more information about uh, what we're doing at any given moment, about how much we weigh, about what our movements are at any given time in order to work, function. Um, and that data will be, of course, incredibly valuable. So. What we've seen is a snapshot of how this is progressing. We can see some of the trends in motion and we can see how they, dangerous they are. Um, but that also, of course, gives us uh, a chance to intervene. It uh, enables us to organize ourselves democratically. Um, the, the platform bosses don't particularly like um, democratic intervention, but we can do it. Um, we can demand certain kinds of regulation. We can demand taxes on their profits. We can demand publicly owned platforms. We can, you know, we can uh, come up with any number of possible ways of intervening here. We don't have to succumb to the future that they've got in mind for us. You write that in technology, we find our own alienated powers in a moralized form, either a benevolent genie or a tormenting demon. These are paranoid fantasies, whether or not they seem malign, uh, because in them we are at the mercy of the machines. And you continue, if the Twittering machine confronts us with a string of calamities, addiction, depression, fake news, trolls, online mobs, alt-right subcultures, it is only exploiting and magnifying problems that are already socially pervasive. Do yeah. we view these machines uh, as we are at their mercies, a, a kind of magical machine, do yeah. we do that in order to displace blame for our society's moral shortcomings? And if that is the case, does social media accurately re represent our moral shortcomings? Um, hmm, yeah, to some extent. I mean, it's, it's complicated because I think one of the reasons why we engage in magical thinking um, is because we, you know, uh, the magical thinking is consolatory. It's it's nice to believe that there is something somewhere that has this tremendous power to shape our lives, a magic button, a golden ticket, you know, uh, the mystic writing pad, whatever it is um, that uh, can um, uh, radically reorganize our lives. Now, uh, having said that, obviously, to some extent, our lives are being radically reorganized. Things have changed a lot since just 2011 when smartphones became ubiquitous. Um, and I don't want to underestimate that, but I think it's very important to recognize that things like, take for example fake news, what we call fake news, um, it covers a lot of ground. The, the concept covers, for example, um, clickbait headlines, um, such and such a celebrity has died. You know, uh, it covers government propaganda, military propaganda. It covers trolling. It covers ignorant and ill-informed posts on social media. An extraordinarily broad range of things. Um, and many of these tendencies were well underway. I mean, you know, you don't have to look for, uh, you know, to the social media for fake news. Look at the old media. 
Look at the newspapers. When was this era of unalloyed truth-telling? When was the era in which they didn't lie to us about, for example, war or climate change or any number of issues? When was the era in which broadcasters and print media didn't just regurgitate press releases because it was economically efficient and easy to do so? When was the era in which they didn't just uh, regurgitate government propaganda because they wanted to have good relationships with the government with authorities and so on. Um, you know, there's the economic and political model, uh, the political economy of mass media has long favoured uh, fake news. And it, has, it can take the form of infotainment, you know, it can take the form of uh, misleading stories in order to generate excitement about a product or a celebrity, or it can take the form of propaganda designed to lead us into war. I mean, it's quite striking that many of these people uh, who are complaining about fake news, like Martin Barron of Washington Post, he complains that uh, fake news is creating disagreement uh, about the very facts uh, organizing our society. And given that, we can't have a real democracy because democracy depends upon a certain minimal agreement as to what the facts are. Now, Martin Barron runs a newspaper that once told us the facts that were there was weapons of mass destruction in the Middle East. Um, that was not true. Those were not the facts. And uh, frankly, the Washington Post is in the worst possible place to start telling us what the facts are. Um, there's always going to be disagreement about the facts in any democratic society. The only societies in which there's no disagreement about the facts are police states. So, um, ultimately, this is their form of moral panic, their form of explaining away why nobody trusts the media anymore, why nobody trusts journalists and editors and so on, why people aren't buying the newspapers and why people, some people would rather listen to conspiracy theorists and, you know, get involved in these ad hoc investigatory committees, you know, 9-11 truth or whatever, um, to try and figure out how society works because they don't trust the authorities anymore. So that's the sense in which moral panic is a displacement. It takes your eyes off um, really important pieces of information, really important bits of data. Uh, so I think um, we should try to keep two apparently uh, contradictory things in mind at once. One is there is a moral panic about social media um, that uh, massively overstates its role in changing our lives. And on the other hand, social media is massively changing our lives in very significant ways, uh, which some of which are actually quite dangerous. And even, you know, every single moral panic usually has some sort of kernel of truth in it. And so I think what we want to do is go back to that kernel of truth and try and extrapolate from there to a much more sensible analysis and theory. That's what I've tried to do in the book. In media criticism that's happening here in the United States, especially that that's on the more leftward side, there has been criticism of people like uh, Bernie Sanders for being critical of those who are in the media and their reporting, in particular, a New York Times writer who was very misrepresentative in an interview and a story that was done about uh, Bernie Sanders. He was then called in the media by his opponents uh, very Trumpian. He they were saying that his attacks on the media were very, very much in line with Donald Trump's. So just to make sure people, because that's the dumb argument that's happening here in the States, how does your critique of fake news differ from Donald Trump's take on fake news? Because I don't want people to be sending me emails saying, wow, Richard Seymour sounds just like Donald Trump. 
<laughs> well, I mean, indeed, it's precisely because Donald Trump um, uses the language of fake news that I'm very skeptical of it. I think as soon as you have Donald Trump uh, appropriating that terminology, uh, that you can sort of see that it has certain authoritarian tendencies. So, I mean, just to be clear, in the book, I do not endorse the concept of fake news. Uh, I think that fake news is, uh, okay, at, at, at the very best, it's a shorthand for a lot of dis different types of things that are problematic. At worst, it's moral panic and uh, blame shifting. Um, and at worst, in the case of uh, someone like Martin Barron, or even worse, Donald Trump, it's an attempt to, um, you know, uh, suppress disagreement over the facts, you know, as though, as though we're not allowed to disagree over the facts. It can be quite authoritarian. So, um, and as regards the stuff about uh, Bernie Sanders, of course, I'm aware uh, of the uh, attack on him. Um, there is a Trump-style attack on media, um, uh, we have it in the United Kingdom, of course, uh, from various uh, parts of uh, Brexit and so on, um, the, the Brexit right. Um, Nigel Farage and all the rest of them uh, are very, very critical of the media. But what they're critical of um, is of uh, newspapers doing their job of critical investigation insofar as they do their job and critically investigate uh, issues and problems, um, then they consider that problematic. Uh, I think what they have in mind is a profoundly authoritarian idea, because uh, in uh, I, I don't know if you've seen this, um, but in recent weeks and months in the United Kingdom, there's been growing chorus uh, for uh, people who are too sympathetic to the European Union uh, and too loyal to Europe to be categorized as treasonous and to be tried and prosecuted for treason. Um, and so, I mean, I don't have particularly strong views on the European Union, but I do think that it's extraordinary that half of the population which uh, is in favor of membership of the European Union might be classified as treasonous. Um, and of course, this would be used against uh, pro-European newspapers, pro-European journalists. And we've seen a number of far-right attacks on journalists in this country, um, but they're not attacking, they're not criticizing the structural power of the media. They're not criticizing discernible empirical uh, bias. Um, you know, they're not criticizing privilege and power. They're criticizing journalists who are doing their job, who are out there trying to cover, for example, right-wing protests, uh, when, of course, these guys don't want to be covered. Um, and so we've seen, and they're not just criticizing, they're engaging in violence. You know, um, the, the, the reporter uh, journalist um, uh, Owen Jones uh, was beaten up by far-right activists just a couple of weeks ago in this country. Um, and it was on the basis of this standard stuff about him and other left-wing journalists being treasonous. So I think it's important that people in the sort of hard centre, the political centre, do not fall into this uh, ridiculous equivocation whereby... The left critique of the media is exactly the same as the right critique of the media. They are very, very different in content, in style, and in the uh, ways in which they go about that critique. Um, and frankly, if you say that they are equivalent, what you're basically saying is that you're not allowed to critique the media. And that itself is a profoundly authoritarian 
um, and dogmatic position to be in. And I think it would be an ironic position for liberals um, uh, to, to end up in. You write that if we found ourselves addicted to social media in spite or because of its frequent uh, nastiness, as I have, you admit, then there is something in (laughs) us that is waiting to be addicted, waiting to be addicted. Are we always in a state of waiting to be addicted under capitalism? Does capitalism incentivize not only for the producer, but also the consumer addiction? Um, to answer that, we have to sort of uh, ask the question, what, what is addiction? What do we mean by addiction? If you think addiction is just like a, a chemical interaction, um, well, you'd find it hard to explain most addictive behavior, actually. Um, but the thing about it is, is even if you know, there is a legitimate uh, biochemical signature to addiction, and we can talk about it, but um, it's a bit like trying to explain love by reference to the fact that it has a certain biochemical signature or any other emotion or any other psychological problem. Um, that is one legitimate way of talking about it, but to reduce it to that would be um, ridiculous. Um, it would not enable us to explain what's really at stake because what is really at stake takes place at the level of meaning, human meaning. Um, and I think that one way we can talk about addiction is when the relationships in our lives don't work for one reason or another, when they're broken down um, and when we can't get what we need out of them, we, um, we form passionate attachments to objects. Um, this is why addiction is sometimes called paraphilia. You know, um, we uh, become attached to, say, tobacco, uh, heroin, uh, or gambling, you know, or something else. Um, we become, um, it's a form of thwarted love um, or a misplaced form of love. Um, and so I think that one can say that over the last 20 or 30 years, there's been a dramatic decline uh, in all indices of sociability. People are socializing a lot less. They go out less. They um, date less. They have less sex. They go to pubs less, you know. Um Drugs that one would do in a social setting, people do less of. Um, now, that has its upsides because it corresponds to a decline in certain forms of problematic sociality like violence, sexual violence or physical violence. That's declined. But it also has corresponded with an increase in depression, um, in self-harm, in suicidal behavior, um, depending, of course, on where you are in the world. But generally speaking, there is a, a, a direct increase in depression and loneliness. Um, and I think that in that sort of context, it's interesting that the network stepped in, you know. The network stepped in and said, we'll, be your, we'll essentially be your society. This will be your social life from now on. If you're feeling lonely, go on Twitter. You'll always find somebody to talk to or write to. And, you know, the condition for that, of course, is that you allow yourself to be a guinea pig and an unwaged laborer and all the rest of it. And you uh, hand over an, a tremendous amount of power over you and people like you to uh, big business and to governments and to state security agencies and all the rest of it. But nonetheless, you have this, you have this offer of uh, what appears to be a kind of uh, socialization. But it's a weird kind of socialization when you think about it, because we use it to 
um, escape from social situations. You know how it is. You're at a dinner party or you're meeting a friend or you're on a date or something and you, you can't help but irritably reach for your phone and have a look and see what your notifications are and check your emails um, and start deleting things. And um, it's, it's compulsive. Uh, and it's a way out of situations. You can, it, it, it bespeaks a certain kind of ambivalence because it enables you to get out of a social situation without actually leaving it. Um, so it creates a certain distance. Um, and that says that we're quite disappointed with our social lives, but we're also really lonely. And I think that that's one of the things that's going on with addiction. But there's something else. Um, because we tend to talk about addiction in terms of pleasure. And okay, there are pleasures of addiction. You know, if you read Thomas De Quincey on uh, opium, it's the most gorgeous, static writing. I mean, he's clearly blown away by what opium can do, the heavens that it can open up within him. And yet, of course, it, it doesn't work out in the end, uh, you know, and it's not sustainable. But there's always the dark side of addiction because everybody knows practically anything you can get addicted to can kill you. Probably, uh, you know, like we'll always have uh, negative effects. We'll, uh, you know, like, for example, gambling, you know, the gambler, they, they, they have a perverse satisfaction in anteing up exactly when they're losing really, really badly, anteing up to the point where they might lose their homes, their livelihoods, their families, everything. They might as well push themselves close to death. And it's the, the same tendency you see at work in a lot of addictions. You know, when you smoke a cigarette, you're ingesting a little bit of death. You know, you look at the covers of cigarette packages these days. They tell you such and such will, this will give you cancer, this will do that. It'll, sometimes it will show you image of a, a cancerous uh, tongue or um, somebody dead in a morgue. Um, and the weird thing is that's not a part of the advertising because it's telling you this is death in a packet. And it's the same thing with any other addiction. Now, for a long time, we didn't think about that when we spoke about social media addiction. It, it seemed not quite on that level of seriousness, except that there is just an abundance of research suggesting that it is uh, that time on device, as the gambling industry calls it, is corresponded to um, increased propensities towards uh, self-harm, uh, towards depression and towards suicidal behavior. Um, and we all know that that's part of the picture. And I would suggest that that's part of the addictive property of it, because if you think about uh, what really gets people to engage with the machine, it's not just the good stuff, you know, when you get pleasant feedback and when people are loving you and retweeting you and showing you the love. It's actually when it's really nasty it's when it goes really horribly awry and people are attacking you or attacking somebody you care about or something. And that's when you tend to, um, you know, um, let's say, uh, start frantically writing back. Um, uh, I give the example of uh, a minor um, sort of celebrity in the United Kingdom, an historian called Mary Beard, feminist, center-left, a uh, very decent human being, wrote something on social media that was not okay, it was a bit problematic, and um, was immediately subjected to one of uh, social media's routine punishment beatings. Um, uh, and she ended up, you know, she, rather than stepping away and reconsidering 
uh, her relationship to this medium. She compulsively responded. As celebrities often do, they engage in compulsive and undignified fights with their fans. She was trying to reason with the, the medium. Um, in the end, she ended up posting an image of herself crying and saying, look, I'm not, I'm really not this nasty person you think I am. And of course, that just goaded the medium on even more because on the one hand, you know, people said, oh, you're using your white guilty tears to evade accountability. But on the other hand, it's like tears are delicious, but not enough. That it's just not enough. And so um, it, it, it pulls you in at the points when it's the most nasty. And, you know, the machine that uh, a minute ago told you you're great, you're a celebrity, you're a star, we love you. T suddenly tells you you're a scumbag, and apparently that is really, really compulsive. Freud gave the name for this type of unpleasure and our addiction to it, uh, death drive. And I think we might have to go back and look at that concept, because it's been forgotten. But um, given the way politics is going, given the way society is going, I think we might want to have a look at that again. You write that what is universal is that time is scarce. If our time is scarce, then why we, do we give away our scarce commodity? Why do we give it away so easily, so freely, so cheaply? Or do we think that it is fair to exchange our time for addiction? Is that why we allow the, the social media platform to have our time because we are exchanging our time for our addiction. I mean, think about what's involved in um, uh, being in, on one of these social industry platforms. Um, parenthetically, I just want to say, I, I, I've referred to social media a few times tonight, but I, uh, or on, in, in this conversation, um, and I just want to say that um, that's actually not a very good term. It's actually propaganda because all media are social. Who can be against social media, <laughs> right? Um, it's a bit like calling cigarettes friendship sticks. They can be used in that way, but that's not what they're for. Um, so I would prefer to call it a social industry because that's what it is. It's a, the most profitable industry in the world. These uh, social industry giants are more profitable. I mean, I grew, I, I grew up politically in the era of fossil giants being the big profit-making corporations, you know, Halliburton and all these others, ExxonMobil. Um, and now it's Google and Facebook, right? So this is a really profitable industry. So with that said, um, in terms of why we give our time to it, well, each individual decision is microscopic. It's almost homeopathic, you know? It's a tiny, tiny decision. And you can always say to yourself, like any addiction happens somewhat behind your back through a lot of very, very small decisions. Um, and, you know, after a while, you find that you've created this situation in which um, you forged an attention tunnel, as the addiction expert Mark Lewis calls it. You know, you have trained your neurons um, through what, you know, neuroplasticity, we can sort of uh, ultimately reshape our brains by dint of what we do and how we train ourselves. And this is one of the things that we actually uh, are doing with this. Um, uh, the more we uh, go on the social media and um, interact in that way, the more we train ourselves to do it again and to become dependent on it, to find a certain satisfaction in it. So... Uh, we make a small decision every single time we go on, 
Um, and uh, after a while, what started off as a decision we made for, say, entertainment or just because somebody had said something annoying and we had to correct them or just because, oh, I can I can tweet this photo of myself and, and you know, maybe people will like it and I'll feel a bit better or whatever it is. Um, it starts to exercise veto power over all other loves, over all other satisfactions, over all other, other projects. And the thing about it is we don't really often get the chance to have an executive overview of our lives. We don't have the chance to take our lives seriously in that sense. Um, we don't have a chance. You know, there are a few points in, in, in our lives where we are encouraged to think about its future direction. You know, like when we take our uh, exams uh, at, at high school or whatever. Um, but most of the time, we don't get the chance to take that sort of executive overview. Maybe sometimes if you, um, for example, are, are given a notification that you've got 12 months to live, you know, you've got a terrible cancer, then you have to really think, now, what am I going to do with this 12 months? What really matters to me? Am I... Uh, and if you really had just 12 months to live, how much of the time that you currently spend on this industry would you then spend? How much of the, your time would you give, your, your last 12 months on earth, would you give to this industry? And I think that that's a useful sort of thought experiment, a way to think about this. And if the answer is none at all, then what on earth are you doing on it in the first place? I'm not suggesting, by the way, I mean, and by the way, I'm not uh, talking from point of uh, from a position of purity, because I, as I say, I'm addicted to this thing. I'm trying to gradually sort of wean myself off it. But I have been the Internet troll. I've been the Internet moralist and witch hunter, you know, the online vigilante. Um, I've, I've done all the bad things that I talk about uh, in this book. Um, so I'm very much part of it. But I would think... Um, if my answer to that question is, uh, I wouldn't give it a second of my life, I really have to think, well, what is the point of, you know, what's the point of being on there? And that's at a personal level. At a political level, what I would suggest is, um, for people on the left in particular, is this the best way that you're going to pursue your political objectives? Because quite often it's quite animating to be on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, and think that you're making a difference. It can feel uh, like you're part of a crowd and that everybody agrees with you just because of the way the machine aggregates sentiment. It's designed to aggregate sentiment. It's designed to give you the impression that you're part of a huge crowd. And uh, you can end up um, sort of deciding that that's how you're going to pursue politics. And given the tempestuous nastiness of this machine, and given its competitiveness and the, the hierarchies on it, and given the sort of um, individualist celebrity like hunting that goes on on this device, you might question whether this is actually the best medium for pursuing any kind of leftist or radical or even liberal progressive politics. I think, as I say in the book, I think that this machine is incipiently fascistic, or at least that it's geared towards the promotion of a certain kind of incipient fascism. And given the uh, sort of thriving of alt-right subcultures and Donald Trump and all the rest of it, through these devices, we might want to think about a bit more carefully about being on there.
You mentioned how user effects in so in the social industry, how they favor monopoly, let alone its addictive propensities. How do user effects favor monopoly? How does it end up that we have Twitter and Facebook and Instagram as these gigantic monoliths? Well, it's very simple. Um, the more people use uh, a particular network, the more uh, value it has for every individual user. Um, so if everybody's on this particular network and you're not, then you're missing out on a number of uh, possible advantages. And that's why, of course, you know, like uh, no political party would deny themselves um, the chance of having a Facebook account, a Twitter account, an Instagram account, uh, maybe Snapchat, I don't know. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the industry will change. New corporations, new platforms are emerging. Um, but, the, you know, you have to make use of the advantages of these things um, the more that people use them. Uh, if people start to not use them for various reasons, then there will come a, a critical mass, a critical point where people are just saying, uh, you know, there's no point, in, there's not even any point in having an account with that uh, platform any longer because nobody uses it. So uh, the monopoly can, of course, be reversed, but the tendency is for it to uh, motor in one direction. The tendency thus far is for them to expand and expand and expand and then to reach their ceiling. Um, and that's what's happened with Facebook. And that's obviously, you know, the, the fact that they've reached a ceiling is a problem for them because there's no uh, other way for them to expand, which is why they're uh, experimenting with cryptocurrency and will be trying all sorts of new things in the future. But um, yes, that has created these giant monopolies and they're monopolies with very low costs of production. Um, and uh, they generate their profit largely through advertising, which is, uh, and, and also through contracts with the universities and whatnot, um, and the military industrial departments. Um, but uh, that most of that profit goes into offshore tax havens because they have nothing to spend it on. You know, their costs of production are so low. Um, and uh, so that creates, on the one hand, these giant sort of uh, Napoleonic business empires um, run in a very sort of eccentric sort of Northern Californian or Seattle culture. Um, and on the other hand, it creates enormous political power because they've got, they've got this massive surveillance capacity. So it bisects business and politics and it creates new forms of economic power. It revolutionizes production systems because it makes them much, much easier and much more transparent to connect. Um, it revolutionizes political systems because it uh, centralizes um, uh, the sort of uh, uh, surveillance capacities um, of, um, you know, it gives you tr tremendous concentrated surveillance capacities over huge populations. Um, and it's also, it's creating a new form of ideological power, because if you think about it, it used to be the idea was, if you're a billionaire, what you want to do is buy a newspaper and use it to broadcast your opinions. Now, that's rather crude, and frankly, not always very effective. Um, uh, the Sun newspaper, uh, for example, in Britain used to be, and still is to some extent, its most popular newspaper. It was very widely read. Uh, it was owned by a billionaire, Rupert Murdoch. Um, tremendously powerful, close to the Conservative Party, uh, ran a very right-wing uh, newspaper. 
but most of its readers voted Labour. Um, so they, 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 don't, they didn't have this uh, really tremendous power that they, they really thought they had and wanted to have. But on the other hand, you've got social industry giants, and anybody who knows how to master them has access to an incredibly complicated and sophisticated um, ideological device. Because on the one hand, of course, it's very massified. They aggregate data, they bundle it together and create huge tranches of data. And on the other hand, the algorithms and the feeds personalize our experience for us so that every single thing, object that appears in our feed is carefully chosen to fit our profile. Uh, uh, and learned from, uh, you know, the algorithms learn from our behavior, they learn from our interactions, they know what we will respond to. And so that means that anybody who can reach us is reaching us in a very personal way, not just in the sense that they're reaching us on our phones, you know, their message is coming directly to our pockets um, uh, day and night, and we're always connected to this thing and is always charged, um, but also that Every single thing that we see in our feed has been curated for us. So it's, it's almost as if it's, it's like a voice whispering directly into your ear. And that's a, an ideological power way more sophisticated than those vulgar Cold War print giants that were sort of ideological vehicles for their uh, megalomaniac owners. Um, this is a system wherein the sort of platform owners don't really care about what the ideological content is. You could be digesting Holocaust revisionism, whatever. All they care about is that you are engaged. But that gives a tremendous advantage to any political operator. Um, uh, you know, Jair Bolsonaro, Trump, uh, Nigel Farage in the UK, um, you know, the Hinduva um, sort of movement in India, the, the sort of Indian far right. Um, the, who, whoever knows how to... Um, orchestrate um, and manipulate these flows of attention um, and uh, who knows how to take hold of these systems of data uh, will be able to game this system. And that's what we're seeing in recent years. Um, so the system is really transforming our politics uh, and our economics in various ways and also transforming the way in which we are ideologically manipulated. One last question for you, Richard. We are speaking with political writer and broadcaster Richard Seymour, author of The Twittering Machine. Richard is an editor at Salvage Magazine, which you can find at salvage.zone. Richard has appeared on This Is Hell several times, his most recent appearance being back in February, when we spoke with him about his article Brexit and the White Working Class, which you can find on his Patreon page, patreon.com slash Richard Seymour WTF. You can find out more about Richard at leninology.co.uk. One last question for you, Richard, and as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write, cyberspace is dream space, a place for exploration and reverie. Reverie is a dream, and a dream is a wish fulfillment, a momentary pleasure wherein a desire is partially satisfied. This is something to be cautiously optimistic about. If desire, as opposed to need or an instinctual program, is distinctly human, then so is the ability to satisfy it indirectly through fantasy. Indeed, since most desires can't be satisfied in any other way, reverie seems to be essential to a pleasurable life. The theft of the capacity for reverie by the social industry, the way it has used gaming industry techniques to lead us into a 
guided trance down pathways lit up with virtual rewards is therefore no trivial matter. What happens to humanity when social media steals our ability to dream? Um, I think it becomes much more impoverished uh, in, in its life. Um, and I don't, I, I don't mean to um, sort of deny that there are pleasures involved in being in that sort of uh, trance, the, the social media trance that people get into. Obviously, there are pleasures. Um, but uh, it's, I mean, I don't know, uh, I can't speak for everybody, but I think it's often quite an anxious experience because if you scroll through your Twitter feed or your Facebook feed or whatever it is, you're going to see one or two or three or four items that will set you off for the rest of the day, that will really terribly wind you up. And it's not about reverie then. It's, it's then it's about catharsis. It's like, oh, my God, Trump has said something stupid. Oh, my God, this person that I like is doing something awful. Um, and the only thing you can do to get catharsis is to type. You have to type into the machine. So you're working for somebody else for free in order just to get catharsis. And that's the thing. Quite often, the way in which we're engaged by this device is by making us angry, anxious. Negative emotions are just as much a part of it as pleasure. Indeed, actually more so. And, you know, this is one reason why, you know, when they say they're going to deal with racism on the Internet, they're going to deal with sexism, cyber sexism, all the rest of it. They're not going to deal with that any more than they're going to deal with fake news because they can't. Because in order to deal with its sources, they would have to deal with their business model. They would have to destroy their business model because their business model depends upon selecting for information that will goad you into reacting. It is about somatic impact. It's not about accuracy. They do not select for accuracy. They don't select for courtesy. They don't select for moral uh, rigor or rectitude. They select for somatic impact. And if it so happens that when you see racist material or sexist material, you go crazy and you start typing and you're angry and you're complaining to everybody and, and all the rest of it, that's counted as user engagement. And as far as they're concerned, that means you love it. Because they don't believe, and they say it, they don't believe that people on the internet know what they want. They say, oh, they say they don't want this feature, and then we do a beta test, and it, it increases user engagement, and therefore they don't know what they want. They really love it, and so we're going to introduce this feature. So they deny the capacity not only to have any kind of democratic will, uh, where you know you have to think consciously about what you want, but also to even have a consumer demand. They don't even acknowledge consumer demand. As far as they're concerned, user engagement will tell the tale. Well, user engagement can be produced by any number of things, and it can be produced by negative, um, uh, deeply negative and awful experiences. And that's such an emaciated, depressed, lonely life. And that's the thing that I want to say. I, I think free your leisure time. Reclaim it. Um, take it back for yourself and reclaim your capacity for reverie. And I'm not saying, you know, that that's a, an answer, uh, a political answer to the problem or a collective answer. I think there are collective answers. And I think that, you know, in the UK, we've got this idea of maybe a public service Internet. We've got public service broadcasting. Why not a public service Internet? There's all sorts of possibilities that we can explore. But just for now, if if your listeners can take away anything, I would say, the time that you're going to spend on the social industry, just once consider taking it elsewhere. 
go into a field somewhere, go to church and sit down and close your eyes or go uh, off into the um, sort of uh, mountains or something and sit there and uh, think and have a cup of tea and write some notes down on a scrap of paper. If you want to write, if we're all going to be scripturient, you know, which means to be possessed by a violent desire to write, why do we have to do it in these circumstances where we're being constantly provoked and goaded and cajoled uh, into working for somebody else? Let's reclaim that capacity. I'm glad that people are writing. I want them to write in ways that help them. Write your way into a better future. That is why we have had Richard on our show so many times. Richard, I cannot thank you enough for being back on our show. This is a fantastic book. I enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed Against Austerity and your Corbin book. Thank you so much for being back on This Is Hell. Uh, thank you for having me. Lovely. All right. Take care. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Join me today shortly after the show is over for the closing of This Is Art 2019, our annual art show that opens every July during our annual listener appreciation party. If you missed the party, come see the art. If you were at the party, see the art one last time and meet some of the artists whose work is on display. That's the This Is Art 2019 closing party today at Second Story Studios Art Gallery. The gallery we share a space with above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. That's today from 2 p.m. to 7 p.m. And it's in the space where we are broadcasting right now. This is a historic broadcast for This Is Hell, our first ever, ever live broadcast over the air on WNUR from our nearly complete and almost thoroughly functioning studio so you are listening to something that is oddly important to me healthcare in the united states is beginning to realize that with an increasingly diverse population you're going to need an increasingly diverse healthcare system with more and more people of color who are healthcare professionals but there are obstacles that keep healthcare from achieving the diversification that is increasingly necessary and in our world where segregation is imposed by the mechanisms of neoliberalism then there are the challenges that people of color healthcare professionals face on the job, including their white colleagues depending upon racial stereotypes and prejudgments in their assessment of, in particular, black patients. We'll learn the impact of neoliberalism on the racial culture of the workplace in a few when we speak with sociologist Adia Harvey Wingfield, author of Flatlining Race, Work, and Healthcare in the New Economy. Adia is professor of sociology at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, I would be asking Alex what he's been up to on social media and getting to listener feedback right now, but I'm going to put all of that off because we want to get to Adia as soon as possible. This week's question from hell is, what is the United States Wi-Fi password? What is the United States Wi-Fi password? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. All replies will be read on air following our next guest. This week's winner gets a book we featured on last week's show by an author who will be in Evanston this Friday, September 6th. The book is How to Be an Anti-Racist, and the author is National Book Award-winning author Ibram X. Kendi. You can hear our interview from last week with Ibram by going to thisishell.com and searching on his last name, Kendi. That's K-E-N-D-I. 
Again, that's this Friday, September 6th. Ibram will discuss his book, this week's Question from Hell Prize, How to Be an Anti-Racist, at 7 p.m. in the Evanston Township High School Auditorium at 1600 Dodge Avenue. Ibram will be interviewed by Marcus Campbell, the assistant superintendent and principal at ETHS. You can find out more about this event by going to... FamilyActionNetwork.net. Again, the question from hell is, what is the United States Wi-Fi password? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen, following our next guest to see if you've won Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, what racism looks like in the workplace, in particular in healthcare, under the constraints of neoliberalism. The misrepresentations and divides over the Green New Deal are not only on the right. The left is having its own issues with the proposal. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin looks far too closely at spiders. We'll also possibly get to listener feedback, tell you what we've been doing on our weekly podcast exclusively for subscribers to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll find out what Alex has been up to online. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online and some others for supporting the show at thisishell.com when they click on support, as well as what's happening on upcoming episodes of the show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind, I'm also a race and gender traitor. This is hell. Neoliberalism has had an intense impact on the workplace, and when it comes to its impact on black healthcare workers, it could be leading us into a healthcare crisis. Here to tell us about the need for diversity in healthcare and the obstacles to it in policy and in the workplace, sociologist Adia Harvey Wingfield is author of Flatlining Race, Work, and Healthcare in the New Economy. Welcome to This Is Hell, Adia. Thank you so much for having me. Adia is professor of sociology at Washington University in St. Louis. Her research examines racial and gender inequality in professional occupations. She's currently serving as president of Sociologists for Women in Society, a national organization that encourages feminist sociology and research teaching and activism. She's also a firm believer that The Wire is unequivocally the greatest show ever created. So keep that in mind, too, during this conversation. So now you know where her biases are. So keep that in mind throughout this entire conversation. You can follow Adia on Twitter at Adia H. Wingfield. You write organizational culture and discourse often lean toward colorblind narratives, even as companies say they want to attract more workers of color. Meanwhile, the professional jobs that blacks have only recently been able to access are increasingly subject to more instability and fewer worker protections. As employees in environments that often are only nominally integrated, black professionals find that their work lives reveal ways that race continues to function as a significant factor in those settings. What is the impact of the colorblind narrative on prospective black professional workers? Does it help or is it a hindrance to employment? Well, I think most research shows that it's a hindrance. It's hard to really pretend that we do live in a colorblind world, given how much racial disparities continue to persist. And I think that my research and that of others shows that for black professionals going into environments where organizations and highly placed workers in organizations want to pretend that the workplace is colorblind really does them a disservice uh, because in many ways the experiences that they have in these work environments aren't ones where race doesn't matter. So it really is inconsistent with what the experiences look like in these in these workplaces. 
And that was said just like a super fan of The Wire. So, see, I told you the boss would be throughout. <laughs> a key it's a great show. I can't stop telling people. <laughs> a key question you ask is, what can black professionals encounters with workplace racial inequality Tell us about how organizations function in the modern economy. How much impact does racial inequality have on the way any workplace functions? And to what degree do the people who work in that workplace, especially their white colleagues, recognize that racial inequality has a huge impact on their workplace? Right. Well, I think a couple of things happen here. I think that to start with your second question, in most cases, uh, I think Research shows that often whites are not aware of the ways in which racial inequality manifests or the toll that it has on black workers or black citizens of this country. If you look at Gallup polling dating back even to the civil, the, around the time of the civil rights movement and right before it, the polling even then shows that when whites were asked their perceptions of racial issues in the United States, their response was usually that things seemed fine. And we know that things were not fine because we know that uh, during that time period when we saw rampant segregation and really stark inequality between blacks and whites. But for whites, the perception was that everything generally seemed to be okay and that issues that were very obviously present were simply not really a, a big problem. So I think that the data show over time that whites generally are not usually aware of the persistence and the toll that racial inequality takes on people of color and on blacks in particular. But I think what has happened in workplaces is that we do have to acknowledge how organizations have changed. And I think one of the ways that organizations have changed is that they now do say that they want to focus more on racial diversity and that they will at least uh, present a picture of themselves as being places that are more attuned to diversity and wanting to have more racial diversity in their workforces. But I think that what often happens, what my research shows, is that that language doesn't actually translate into results. It doesn't translate into more resources and more support and more initiatives that are actually designed to address the systemic causes that keep black workers in particular underrepresented at the highest levels of organizations. And what workplaces do instead is that they usually end up doing what I refer to in the book as racial outsourcing, which is just leaving this work up to black professionals in particular to do themselves. And what I argue and what I show in the book is that when black professionals are left to do this work of racial outsourcing, or rather do this work of what I call equity work, of doing the labor of making organizations more accommodating to communities of color, this becomes an extra added burden on these workers that goes unnoticed and unrewarded and maybe most importantly, uncompensated. But it becomes a way that organizations can have it both ways. They can say that they want to have more diversity without actually putting the attention and the labor into it, but they leave this work up to black professionals. So racial outsourcing and equity work, how dependent is any success that neoliberalism having, how dependent is it on that free labor of racial outsourcing and equity work? Well, I think that's something that's come out of the shift that we've taken to this more neoliberal economy. We've moved in very decisive directions into this more neoliberal framework where the idea is that individualism is this great thing and collectivity is bad and workers working together and unionizing is a bad thing and that uh, in, or individuals should take an increasing um, responsibility for their own health care and their own retirement and things like that, rather than those things being managed or shared, at least by organizations and workers. And I think that that's reflected in how many organizations approach this, uh, their attempts at diversity. There's this this sense that organizations say that they want more racial diversity in their workforce. But then there's also this competing sense 
that this is the responsibility of the workers in the organization and the black workers in particular to make this diversity happen. So it doesn't become something that's collectively shared. It doesn't become something that's the collective burden or the collective responsibility, I should say, of everybody who's in that workplace or particularly everybody who's at a position at the top. So I think that this orientation towards neoliberalism has shaped how diversity work gets done, but it also is reflected in other bigger structural issues. When one of the chapters that I talk about in the book is what has happened to the public sector and how the underfunding of the public sector has had real consequences for public hospitals that primarily serve uh, patients of color, often low-income uninsured patients of color. And one of the things that I found was that equity work in those settings and racial outsourcing in those settings was particularly acute because many black healthcare workers who are employed in public hospitals um, go to those settings and go to those places because they have a real commitment to wanting to treat patients who otherwise might be mistreated in the healthcare system and who have had a long history of being mistreated in the healthcare system. But there's also a sense from these workers that the organizations where they are employed really exploit and take advantage of that commitment and simply leave it to them to do the extra work of trying to care for these communities in an era of declining resources and in an era of underfunding that makes it that much more difficult. So um, getting back to just the uh, concept of diversity, how good is racial diversity for the bottom line? Is the market in any way an impediment or something that assists in racial racial diversity in the workplace? Right. Well, there are studies that do show that uh, racial diversity is beneficial to corporations and that it can be beneficial to helping companies uh, improve their bottom line. So there is research that does suggest that uh, it's to corporations' advantage to have more racial diversity. And I think that in uh, at least some cases, people who are diversity managers will have some success by making what they refer to as that business case to managers and people from whom they need buy-in, that if they can make the argument that uh, more diversity helps the company and this is something that helps our corporate uh, profit and this is something that we should be striving for. I think that's an approach that um, some diversity managers can successfully leverage and employ in order to improve diversity in organizations. But again, I think the challenge comes from the extent to which those efforts are supported and buttressed by organizational resources and the extent to which those efforts are uh, collectively shared rather than simply placed on one person's doorstep or what I find in the book is implicitly tasked or in some cases explicitly tasked primarily to workers of color who end up doing this additional labor, again, without the rewards that it deserves. You write that black professionals' work experiences reveal contemporary forms of institutional and interpersonal racism, but these racial encounters are also linked to the ways organizations can devalue and appropriate black labor in the current neoliberal economy. How has the way that black labor has been appropriated and devalued changed under neoliberalism? Right. So some of that, I think, references uh, what I was talking about a moment ago, that we've seen this shift over about the past 30 to 40 years, um, really towards privatization of many of our public services. And we've seen this shift away from having a really robust uh, well-developed uh, public sector. Uh, we see that in terms of the privatization of many public services. We see that in terms of shrinking tax revenues in many states and across the country at large. 
And so the consequences of that are that the public services that are available uh, are not what they used to be, and that they are primarily used by people who don't financially have the option to uh, afford otherwise. What that means in the healthcare system is that healthcare, and I make this point in the book too, has largely become what I refer to as this two-tiered system. There's this private system of healthcare for those who can afford it, and there's this public system of healthcare for those who can't. And if you're lucky enough to be able to afford the private system of insurance, then you can have access to uh, specialists and uh, preventative treatment, and you kind of get the psychosocial rewards of being seen as the patient who has the healthcare that they deserve. But for those who are able to access only the public sphere of healthcare, um, it's it's declining in terms of resources and the support that it needs and that it deserves in order to adequately serve the population that it has to treat. And so what that ends up meaning for uh, black workers in that situation is that they end up doing a great deal of additional labor to try to make, make up for that shortfall. So for example, in this chapter, I talk about the implications that this has for black women doctors in particular and the ways that they felt rather uniquely stressed by working in that environment. And I talked with a black woman doctor during my research who described, uh, in her words, feeling like Mammy, the character from the 1930s who was the uh, very um, supportive, uh, asexualized representation of black femininity who was focused very much on just caring for white families. And what she told me was that the way that the organization approached her commitment to communities of color made her feel like they simply just wanted to exploit and take advantage of her work and her commitment and her concern for these communities. And that it frustrated and it made her angry because she didn't feel that she got the support that she needed from the institution where she worked. But she also felt that they knew that because of her commitment to communities of color, they could take advantage of the fact that she was determined to try to provide better care for people who have to take advantage of public systems of care because they can't afford the private ones. So I write this in the book to make this point about how this shift to a more neoliberal economy and this focus on privatization and defunding the public sector and leaving fewer and fewer resources for public workers uh, has implications that we're not talking about. It's not just that it's creating a greater dichotomy in terms of who has access to care and what kind of care they receive, but it's also creating real measurable uh, concrete effects for people who work in those systems, particularly black healthcare workers who are doing this extra labor um, because they are committed and they care and they are concerned, but that extra labor is um, not really being rewarded and it's being uh, exploited or their perception is that it's being exploited by these institutions. And I think you can draw a line back to the way that neoliberalism has encouraged us to think much more about privatization and privatizing many different sectors of our society at the expense of the public sector. You write about the ER doctor, Randy Goodwin, who, as you write, grew up not far from the hospital where he now works, and he talks a lot about the ways that his personal and professional lives overlap as a result. In this setting, Randy actually sees his racial status as an advantage. In fact, one of the things that's striking about Randy's life and work is that while he has had some of the standard racial encounters you might expect to find in the life of a black person working in an overwhelmingly white field like medicine, he states that race is 
much more salient to his life as something that helps him relate to patients. Most of the patients who visit his ER are people of color. And in that context, he sees him sees race as something that helps create a rapport that all allows him to do his job effectively. How much can mm-hmm. race have an impact on the effectiveness of a hospital staff? Can not having that rapport lead to poor medical outcomes? Yeah, actually, there's been an interesting spate of research on this topic that has shown that uh, same race practitioners and patients, particularly among black communities, can really have an impact on patient well-being and outcomes. There was a recent study that I think was uh, reported in the New York Times that showed that increasing the number of black men physicians could potentially erase some racial health disparities for black men patients who are likely to experience um, a disproportionate amount of certain illnesses and healthcare challenges. So the stories of people like Randy, um, who was just a really interesting person that I followed for the book and spent, got to spend a lot of time with, present some interesting insights that I think might challenge some of what we think we know about uh, race and healthcare workers, right? I think that particularly when it comes to black professionals, there's this narrative out there when we do talk about them at all, that tends to put their experiences in this box of focusing on the slights and microaggressions or even macroaggressions that they can face in various uh, contexts and settings. But I think that one of the things that comes, one of the things that comes out of the book is attention to how that story is a little bit more nuanced and more complicated than we might think. And I think that the examples that Randy gives of being a black healthcare provider who grew up in the area where he now works and having the real familiarity with his neighborhood and with his community and with the people that he serves puts him in a position where he really uh, views that as a particular advantage in that setting and a way to relate to his patients in way that ways that could potentially lead to um, racial improvements in, in health care and outcomes. Now, I don't want to say that and give the impression that uh, being a black professional worker across the board is necessarily an advantage in this or all settings. Because remember, the flip side of that is what I was just talking about a moment ago. Randy sees his racial status as an advantage in bonding with patients, but he also was one of the doctors that really opened my eyes to this concept of equity work that I describe in the book. So at the same time that he's able to bond with patients and use their shared racial identity as a means for helping to improve health outcomes, He also feels that there's a very real way in which the hospital where he works, again, takes advantage of that connection by expecting him and other black healthcare professionals to provide these services in ways that improve outcomes without also offering them the necessary resources, particularly in a public hospital where budgets are shrinking and resources are becoming ever more scarce. You write that at the same time, however, Randy also notes the ways race establishes subtle differences between him and his white colleagues. While he may have more common ground with the black patients from his old neighborhood, he is also painfully aware that his connect that's connection and the occupational advantages it brings are not always or even often recognized or rewarded by the organization in which he works. Why aren't Randy's contributions recognized? To you, what explains why Randy's White colleagues do not recognize how Randy contributes to the organization. Is it simply that rapport is dismissed or invisible as a contribution to medical and healthcare? I think that's a big part of it. In a later chapter, when I do talk about um, black healthcare workers in the public sphere, the same doctor that I was referencing before, the black woman doctor who talked about, I heard described herself as feeling like Mammy, talked about how 
empathy gets so overlooked in the context of medicine. And I remember her telling me that uh, in her experience, no one has more empathy for patients than black women. But the way that medicine is structured, it's not designed in a way to reward empathy as a criteria or a qualification that uh, boosts your skill or standing in the profession. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. We can look historically at how medicine has evolved. We can look at the occupational culture of the field and the profession and think more about why that, that might be. But I think that for someone like Randy, the relationship that he has with patients, um, and particularly the way that race uh, functions as a, um, a connecting force that can help him to improve patient outcomes, at least potentially, is something that is nice and it's helpful. But I don't think from my view or from his view and what he shared with me that that's something that the hospital sees as something that they want to necessarily value monetarily. And again, when we think about why that might be, I think it goes back to the points that you've been raising um, thus far about how neoliberalism has really shaped and constructed many of our institutions and industries, <coughs> excuse me, and what that has meant for healthcare um, is, again, the shift towards the financialization and um, uh, commodification of healthcare as um, a business more so than a service and a good that can be provided and ways in which things like empathy and uh, rapport with patients, particularly when driven by race and racial status, don't get perhaps the recognition, rewards, or compensation that maybe they should. We are speaking with sociologist Adia Harvey Wingfield, author of Flatlining, Race, Work, and Healthcare in the New Economy. Adia is currently serving as president of Sociologists for Women in Society, a national organization that encourages feminist sociology in research, teaching, and activism. You can follow Adia on Twitter at Adia H. Wingfield. You also mentioned Teresa Evans, a family nurse practitioner at a private clinic in Arizona. Unlike uh, Randy, the ER doctor, Teresa refers to herself as always, as having always been the token black, suggesting that this description best explains most of her time spent working in nursing on elite floors and in elite clinics. Then you list some of her experiences, including how Teresa has had to deal with fellow nurses who tell her that she doesn't deserve her highly coveted day shift position. She learned quickly that she cannot afford to make mistakes because they will be exaggerated and scrutinized in ways that her white colleagues' errors are not. She had to figure out how to respond to coworkers who racially stereotype black patients while praising her for being different and swallow her frustration at being assigned the most difficult demanding patients. Coworkers who racially stereotype black patients while pressing or praising her for being different. In your research, how common are reports of white workers praising their black colleagues' identity, if you will, while openly engaging in racist stereotypes? So that's a great question. And I'm glad you brought up the example of Teresa because it highlights what I found to be one of the most interesting findings in the book, which was the differences in how workers in different jobs describe the ways that race affected their work. And I was really struck by this because I didn't expect this finding going into the research. Um, but one of the things that I really focus on in doing the work in writing the book was the contrast between the ways that doctors described race having an impact on their work and nurses like Teresa, who you quoted, described having an impact. So for nurses like Teresa, they characterize themselves as being employed in environments where race was very consistent as something that uh, their coworkers 
uh, brought to their attention or highlighted or brought up as a, a factor that made them different. Teresa was one of my respondents who gave a lot of examples. And there are others in the chapter where I talk about nursing in the book. Uh, but Teresa was one of the workers who gave a lot of examples of being stereotyped, of being mistreated, of people openly saying a lot of uh, hostile and unsettling things to her. And she wasn't the only one. But what was noteworthy about this was the differences in how that occurred for workers like her versus how that occurred for doctors and for technicians, who were the other category of workers that I studied. And I think this is also an interesting finding, but one that goes back to how work has changed in ways that I think are not necessarily, well, we know that work has changed in ways that are not uh, broadly very productive for workers at large, right? That the increase in neoliberalism and the increase in contract work and uncertainty has left workers with a lot more stress, a lot more emotional um, uh, baggage and wreckage and a lot more, a lot less clarity about their work and their finances and so forth. But I found that that those changes have also had an impact on black workers, particularly nurses and technicians who are in fields where they're more likely to deal with the brunt of that uncertainty and the brunt of those changes. And so one of the things that I argue in the book is that for nurses like um, Teresa, who find themselves in positions where uh, nurses may be over, um, understaffed or they may find themselves working longer shifts than they are perhaps supposed to, they're in conditions where structurally um, they aren't facing or aren't experiencing the levels of support that make it easier to do their jobs. For black workers, some of the consequences of this, I think, are that it exacerbates um, racial stresses that might already be there. And I think that the experiences that nurses like Teresa described really speak to this, of where nurses find themselves so stressed out and so overworked and under so much pressure that that leads to or exacerbates uh, some of the racial divides that may already be present there for black nurses and certainly creates similar challenges for black technicians. How much do you think that overwork is uh, plays a role within the epidemic of depression that we are seeing under neoliberalism? Does neoliberalism not only depend on that overwork, but does it also make us incredibly depressed? Because I, I, I cannot get over how little people have recognized the negative impacts to our psyche, to our physical well-being, to our lives that neoliberalism has. Right. I mean, that was not a direct focus of my study, so I'm speculating here to some degree, but I would guess based on my research that there's probably a connection. I mean, we do know from the research that's out there, and a number of sociologists have done studies on the consequences of the new economy for workers. Jennifer Silva, Marion Cooper, Victor Chen, they've all written really great books and done a lot of research on what this, what this shift towards neoliberalism and the lack of support for workers is doing to workers and the impact that it's having on workers. And most of what they find is not positive. They find that as a group, American mm -hmm. workers are increasingly stressed. We are increasingly emotionally battered by the fact that work has become much more insecure. We have far less access to stable, what sociologist Arnie Kalleberg refers to as good jobs that pay reasonable incomes and offer benefits and support. Those things are just not a model for how work works anymore. And it is taking a toll. It's having an impact on many American workers. And one of the things that motivated me to write this book in the first place was to try to think about what particular consequences those changes might have for Black professionals in particular, who we know are less likely to be in these sorts of stable um, 
well-paying, comfortable, so to speak, jobs, even as those jobs are, are declining. Uh, but we know across the board that the shifts in how we are working are not working for most of us. Is engaging in racial stereotypes any more likely in the workplace under neoliberalism? Does neoliberalism incentivize, reward, or in any way even encourage not just racial stereotypes, but racialization of the workplace? That's a hard question to answer, only because I think that issue of racialization in workplaces has been present in the United States for so long. So I don't know if I can say that it's more prevalent now than, say, during the era of Jim Crow segregation, when there obviously was very clear, overt uh, racialization and racial stereotyping of workers and assumptions about who fit into certain jobs and outright denial of letting people have access to certain jobs. It's hard to say that that's more so present now. <laughs> it's hard to say that that's more so present now than um, even in previous eras, eras before Jim Crow, say if we're looking at the post-Civil War era where uh, black workers were disproportionately channeled into sharecropping jobs, or as uh, Douglas Blackman writes in history, or slavery by another name, uh, pretty much engaged in uh, wage slavery, um, slavery in, in states or as a result of state action. And clearly, if we want to talk about eras preceding that, then <laughs> it's hard to find a time when race mattered more for work and access to work than if you look back to the slave trade, which was a substantial portion of our, our nation's history. Um, so I'm not sure that I could say that neoliberalism has exacerbated uh, racial stereotyping in workplaces, only because that's been such a consistent and foundational part of how we have worked and how work has been constructed in America since before it even became an independent nation. Given You write that given that Teresa has few black colleagues and a perception of organizational inertia, her overt experiences with workplace racism have particularly attuned her to the ways her hospital's policies influence the racial climate at her job. Do the hospital's policies have a positive or negative impact on the racial climate at Teresa's jobs? Don't hospitals impose a certain level of non-racist behavior on their employees? Aren't workplaces in our day and age brutally politically correct? Because that's what I keep hearing about institutions, organizations here in the United States, that they've been forced to be politically correct. So do hospital policies have a positive or negative effect on the racial climate at Teresa's job? Well, I don't think Teresa would say that they had a positive impact on her experiences. And I don't think that the other respondents, particularly the ones who were nurses, would say so. And this is part of what I was getting at before when I was talking about the ways that um, occupational status matters, but also how um, a shift to neoliberalism and the strain that it puts certain workers under matters as well, right? So for nurses, what I heard from a lot of them was that hospital policy um, or yeah, hospital policy will say that uh, these are workplaces that don't discriminate and we are uh, workplaces where we value diversity. But then what would happen in practice would be examples like what I heard from another respondent who told me that uh, she had an interaction with a coworker where the coworker, <coughs> excuse me, the coworker uh, had invited people to come to her house for some sort of social gathering just to, to hang out and have a good time and turned to my respondent and said, well, you could come, but you'd have to be wearing a rag on your head and carrying a pail to come into my house, implying that this coworker would only be welcome if she were coming to clean the house, which, again, is a very stereotypical way of referencing a black woman, particularly someone who is your peer in the workplace, right? So 
when this respondent shared that example with me, um, that wasn't an isolated case. That respondent shared a number of other examples, some of which I detail in the book, about ways that they encountered those sorts of interactions with other people at the workplaces. Unless we uh, kind of hearken back to this mindset that I think is common and think, oh, well, this must have been a respondent in some uh, rural area, perhaps in the South. No, this was a respondent in a major metropolitan area. So I don't want to give the impression that these are just kind of isolated pockets of things that happen in the types of areas that we often um, uh, stereotype as being places with, with racial problems. There was another respondent that I spoke to who described being referred to as a, a Monday and shared, uh, I don't know if your listeners are familiar, but shared the experience of being of learning that that was a racially stereotyped term to use to derogatorily refer to, to black people. So policies that say we have a racially diverse workplace or we value a racially diverse workplace and that we're not a workplace that tolerates uh, discrimination or racial insensitivity weren't applied to these workers. These workers worked in environments where uh, people might describe the environments as politically correct because of the labels the workplaces put up. But when it came to what actually happened in those workplaces, policies were largely ineffective because they weren't designed to deal with the types of challenges that black workers encounter in these spaces on what was for nurses a pretty regular basis. Can we have a racially diverse workplace and a healthy racial climate at the workplace while neoliberalism is simultaneously making our neighborhoods less diverse, segregating our neighborhoods. Can we have a diverse workplace when our communities, when our neighborhoods are not diverse? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so I, I will answer in two parts. One, the first part is that I think we absolutely have to move towards a model of having more racially diverse workplaces, neighborhoods, schools, environments across the board. And the reason that we have to do that is that, like it or not, this is the direction that the U.S. is heading. We are heading in the direction of becoming a much more multiracial society and a much more multiracial country. And we are going to have to deal with that fact. And it seems to me that the most effective way to deal with that fact is to address many of the structural barriers that have and continue to reproduce racial segregation in most, if not all, of our social institutions. So the second part of your question, can we do that as long as we live in an environment and a society where economic structures are largely oriented around neoliberal ideals that facilitate individualism over collectivism and that facilitate privatization over strengthening public resources and public goods and that are anti-support for uh, unions and for workers and much more in favor of support for uh, those who are uh, likely to be at the, the 1%, so to speak, I don't see how that happens. And part of how I don't, part of why I don't see how that, part of why I don't see how that can happen is because of some of the data that I show in the book in terms of where and how uh, people of color and black communities in particular are disproportionately more likely to access these public resources that are simultaneously being gutted as a result of support for neoliberal ideology. 
if we continue along this path where, according to neoliberalism, we just move towards this direction of increasing privatization and minimizing state support and public resources, that has real consequences for people who may not be able to afford to access uh, privatized functions and facilities. And it has consequences for workers in particular who are, as I mentioned before, dealing with increased stress and emotional burdens as a result of the way that growing privatization and focus on uh, shareholder value and profits and bottom lines and corporations over workers and people um, are not benefiting and not working broadly and creating an economy that functions effectively for all. So continuing to move in this direction where we focus on uh, privatizing everything and emphasizing uh, the collapse of good jobs and jobs that offer worker protections and a shared model where organizations take some responsibility for labor and for workers' retirement accounts and for uh, health care and things like that, to me does not seem like a model that's compatible with the types of racial diversity and the realities of uh, centuries of racial inequality that we are coping with in the United States. You write that Randy, the ER doctor, his commitment to working in the public sector, and you touched on this earlier, but I want to get back to it, his uh, commitment to working in the public sector has implications for how we staff, structure, and value the institutions that provide services to patient populations who are disproportionately poor and of color. To what extent does the commitment to public institutions by people of color, motivated by how important those public institutions are to other people of color within their community as well as to themselves, to what extent does that commitment lead to and undervaluing of public institutions by not only their white colleagues, but by also the white media. Do public institutions get a bad rap to any degree because they attract people of color whose communities value those institutions? Yeah, I mean, again, this is something that has been documented by research. The data show that that is exactly what happens, that uh, when it comes to thinking about um, public resources, whether we're talking about schools, transportation, healthcare, and so forth, there is an implicit association that many people have that these sorts of public resources equal resources that are primarily used by poor black people, which makes them less likely to want to uh, support, fund, or, uh, or utilize them. And that's a problem for many reasons, and it's unfortunate for many reasons, uh, not least of which because, again, research has also shown that broad public support for our resources and privatization is not moving in a direction where this is benefiting most Americans. So by clinging to this idea that public services and public resources are only for poor black people and therefore should be stigmatized and discredited and underfunded and tried and eventually um, not used or underused or what have you actually works to the disadvantage of everybody because the push in the other direction is creating uh, epic levels of stress, uncertainty, um, agitation, and again, maybe more importantly, is creating an economy that does not work for most people, not just for black people, but an economy that does not work for most of us. And this is a point that, again, a lot of sociological research has shown pretty definitively. We are seeing growing numbers, record numbers in some cases of economic inequality. That is a major issue and that's widening and becoming more and more severe and more and more serious. That's not happening because we are investing widely in our public resources and our public services. It's happening because we are doing the opposite. 
So this idea that we um, are somehow solving a problem by trying to eliminate uh, or make more difficult access to public transportation, access to public health care, access to public education and other resources and services. The idea that we're doing ourselves some favor by stigmatizing those things and associating them only with poor black communities and suggesting that they don't deserve our resources or support is rather short-sighted and not benefiting us as a society in the long term. You see Randy, the ER doctor, Teresa, the nurse, and Amber Davis, a cardiac monitor technician. Uh, You see them having commonalities in their experiences as, quote, their determination to affect change for communities of color, their frustration with their workplaces, seeming inability to meet minority patients' needs, and their complicated, at times contradictory, racial encounters with patients and coworkers. The need for change, frustration, complication. How do those feelings affect the effectiveness of black health care professionals at work? Is their work any more difficult than the same work being done by white colleagues because they see an obvious need for change while feeling frustrated in their complicated workplace? Yeah, I think that's another great question. And that's a big part, I think, of what work life is like for black healthcare workers. One of the things that I came away with in doing the study was such a sense of awe and respect and um, just being really impressed by the work that I saw being done by healthcare workers at large. I mean, this it's such a taxing job and it's so, it requires so much and it requires uh, such a level of dedication and skill and patience and hard work from people who are employed in the industry, period. However, I also observed that for black healthcare workers, as with most jobs, uh, being black and being in the minority and doing this job as an additional burden and an additional level of challenges. And for many black healthcare workers, what you just quoted from the book was my attempt of summing up what those challenges mean for them in the workplace, that black healthcare workers do this job that requires so much and that is just such an amazing, uh, requires such a level of dedication does, and is such an amazing job in terms of what it requires from you and what it allows you to do. But at the same time, In many cases, they are also doing this work uh, of trying to make their services available to communities of color, despite organizations that don't really support their efforts in doing so. And that does lead to frustrations, and that makes the job that much more difficult and that much more challenging when there's this effort to provide this care on a comprehensive level that isn't supported by the institutions where you work. That work is more challenging if you're a nurse like Teresa, who is doing this work uh, while being faced by uh, white colleagues who, without evidence or without uh, concrete reasons behind their assertions, want to claim that she doesn't deserve the job that she worked very hard to get and that she's completely capable uh, of doing and that she's 100% qualified for doing. It's much harder for workers uh, like Amber and other technicians that I spoke to who do this job but face similar doubts and stereotypes and uh, uh, judgments and questions from patients who make similar assumptions about their fitness for the work that they're doing and rely on racial stereotypes for making those judgments. So I think, yes, it's definitely important to highlight the ways in which race uh, creates these additional frustrations and challenges, even as these workers are doing 
just Herculean amounts of labor to not only do their jobs, but to do their jobs effectively and to do their jobs in ways that will have an impact on communities of color who are often and have historically often been overlooked in the medical community. You mentioned projections of shortages of doctors in coming years as high as over 90,000 doctors short. You write, the responses from practitioners in this study suggest that this shortage is not simply due to a lack of workers, but that organizational attempts to cut costs contribute to high turnover and low numbers of available practitioners, particularly in nursing. When organizations hire fewer workers than are needed and establish stressful conditions for employees, this means that black technicians in particular will continue to encounter racial outsourcing. Is neoliberalism about to or in the process of causing a health care shortage crisis in the United States? Well, I don't think it's making it better. <laughs> I will say that. I don't think that neoliberalism is working to solve or reverse or offset um, the health care crisis that's looming and that is in many ways upon us. And we can talk about how that's creating challenges in terms of having fewer workers to do the jobs that are necessary and that are available. But one of the things, again, that I wanted to point out uh, in the book is that not only is this crisis um, something that exists, but it is a crisis that has particular consequences for black workers. When I talk about technicians, for example, one of the interesting things that came out of my interviews with them was that they talked about how often they had clashes with nurses and the ways in which the clashes themselves were often racialized. And in some ways, this isn't surprising. Uh, nursing is a predominantly white profession. It's a profession predominantly comprised of white women specifically. Um, and uh, technician work is not a uh, profession where overall most of the participants are, or most of the workers are black, but you are more likely to find more black workers in technical work than you are, say, in medicine, working as doctors. But one of the interesting things that nurses, excuse me, that technicians drew my attention to was that in as much as nurses face these conditions that make their work that much harder, uh, the understaffing, the attempts to get nurses to do more and more work so that hospitals can avoid hiring more people and therefore having to pay more people and deal with uh, payroll, labor, um, having more full-time workers on staff, what that meant was that nurses were much more likely to take out their frustrations with these arrangements on technicians. And for black technicians, the ways in which these frustrations were experienced were often through what they believed to be uh, racial slights or uh, mistreatment or things like that. So again, this goes back to what I was saying before. You take a situation that's already somewhat fraught by virtue of the fact that uh, we live in this environment where organizations are encouraged to cut costs as much as they can and to cut labor as much as they can. And that takes a toll. And that takes a measurable, clear toll on workers across the board. And when nurses experience that, they experience that by virtue of having to do much more work than perhaps they should because organizations don't simply want to hire more people to meet the increased workload and the level of work that has to be done. But for black technicians, there becomes an added layer of challenge there as nurses who are already stressed out and overworked and challenged may feel or believe that as technicians or people who exist below them in the organizational hierarchy of the healthcare industry, these become people, particularly black technicians, on whom they can kind of take out their, their frustrations. And that was how technicians described a lot of their relationships with nurses to me. Would any sort of universal health care system or program, would that solve all of the problems that people of color face within the U.S. health care system? 
That's a great question. I don't know that I can say it would solve all of the problems um, because I'm wary of conflating um, kind of public policy solutions that can address uh, economic disparities and issues with those that can address racial issues specifically. And I think when we talk about implementing a public health care system, we're talking about implementing a public policy solution that can potentially disproportionately improve healthcare outcomes for black communities, but we are not always necessarily talking about how that public policy solution will impact black workers specifically when it comes to the ways that race has an impact on their work. And I think that's a separate conversation that needs to be had as part of what we talk about when we discuss implementing a public, uh, a public healthcare uh, solution across the board, right? We don't want to assume that implementing this public policy solution that could potentially um, incidentally improve healthcare for black communities means also that black workers are going to see an improvement as well. Because what if what ends up happening is something that's somewhat similar to what happens to black workers in public health care facilities now. They find themselves overtaxed and overworked and doing additional amounts of labor because there are now more patients that require them and require health care services. And I write about this some in the chapter on black uh, health care workers who are in the public sector when I write about their responses to the Affordable Care Act. This is an act that many of my respondents were very much in favor of because they appreciated the way that it improved access to care for uh, communities of color, particularly black communities. But it wasn't that improving the, or including the Affordable Care Act or having the Affordable Care Act necessarily led to improvements in their workplace conditions because they still were disproportionately likely to uh, face a lot of challenges in terms of interactions with patients, in terms of not having access to resources. So I guess my concern is that when we talk about including and incorporating a public health care solution, we want to make sure that we're also mindful of and thinking about what implications that would have for black healthcare workers who are, by virtue of where they work and their reasons for getting into the work, more likely to be responsible for dealing with this influx in patients and communities that want care and to make sure that they have the resources and support they need to do that work effectively. I've got one last question for you, but before I ask that question, I just wanted to quote you again in your book because you do offer ways in which this process can be solved, in which organizations can deal with racial diversity. And you write, institutions that take an integration and learning approach that values the way ways diverse groups can challenge and contribute to the organization's mission can help achieve long-term goals, thus establishing formal programs that move past cultural competence or public statements are overtly color conscious and are intentionally designed to improve the pipeline of underrepresented workers into these professions that might be a viable start. In other words, treat them as co-workers. I was kind of stunned by that. It just sounds like, well, just in, if you want to integrate people into your workplace, then integrate them into your workplace. It seems like very <laughs> obvious, but I think it's just a great point to make. One last question for you, Dia. And uh, our final question for all of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And I know that that's the category this is going to fall into. We have been speaking with sociologist Adia Harvey Wingfield. She is author of Flatlining Race, Work, and Healthcare in the New Economy. And I'm concerned about her appreciation of the show, The Wire. I think she's 
she's a little bit too obsessed. <laughs> you can follow Adia on Twitter at Adia H. Wingfield. You write it may be useful to be a bit more circumspect about the extent to which whites have adopted colorblind or post-racial language when it comes to their public discussion of racial matters. As the nurses and technicians in the study can attest, for workers at their occupational level, blatant racial stereotyping has hardly disappeared between be, behind the polite veneer of colorblindness. How easily can people of color see through that polite veneer of colorblindness held by whites? How successful or effective is that veneer at convincing people of color color that the allegedly colorblind person or the organization they represent are really kind of racist? <laughs> well, again, there's a lot of research out there on this question of colorblindness and the implications that it has and the um, cost that it carries. Um, there's a, a, yeah, there's a great deal of research that does talk about this. And most of what it shows is that when people profess to be colorblind, uh, just to put it very bluntly and succinctly, usually they are not. <laughs> usually that's not what happens. And that usually that type of language is a way of either um, preempting or covering for what often turn out to be statements that are often grounded in racial bias or reinforce structures or practices that maintain racial inequality. Um, I don't think that those that I don't think that's necessarily a new finding uh, because again, there's been a lot of research over the past, I'd say, 15 years or so, that has shown this and talked about this pretty clearly. Um, I think that for many people of color, the sorts of Statements that seem to signal a person who wants to be seen as colorblind are pretty familiar. I don't see race. I don't have a racist bone in my body. I wouldn't care if this person was black, white, polka dot, purple. The last two are not actual races, but they seem to find their way into those statements pretty frequently for, for whatever reason. Um, but again, given that those statements usually precede um, a statement that's grounded in bias or an action that's grounded in bias or a justification for things that perpetuate racial inequality, it doesn't become hard to hear those and realize that um, what the speaker is trying to convey is usually not what's going to be supported by their actions. And it actually reminds me of, I wrote a piece for The Atlantic about four years ago that unfortunately still continues to be relevant called Colorblindness, Colorblindness is Counterproductive. And the point that I make in that piece is that given the persistence of racial inequality in the U.S. in so many institutions and social settings and structures and in aspects of our everyday life, it's hard to make an effective argument for being colorblind because what all that does is preclude you from seeing the ways that racial inequality persists. How do you deal with the persistence of inequality in workplaces, in schools, in social settings, in everyday interactions, in shopping, in policing, in consumption? How do you deal with those inequalities if you're pretending that they don't exist. Those things don't don't go together. So all that's just to say that um, this idea of colorblindness, I think, sounds nice to some people, but um, it isn't really, in my view, and in the view of many researchers who have studied it more extensively, it isn't something that pushes us further towards getting to a place where race ceases to be a measure of stratification or a marker of stratification and a way of creating um, and maintaining more systemic inequalities. I found your book to be fascinating, and if there is anybody out there who is in a workplace and wants to address the racial culture at their workplace, wants to address diversity at their workplace in a real 
concrete way, this book will open up your eyes and give you a new perspective as to what happens within organizations when it comes to race. Adia, this is a really important book, and I hope anybody out there, especially in a management position, will be reading this book. It doesn't matter what position you're in, but especially if you're in a management position, because it gives you a really great perspective on the challenges that people of color may be facing in your workplace. Thank you so much for being on the show, and thank you so much for writing this book. It's really important. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Okay, take care, Idea. Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become this is hell's pimp, support this is hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on the word support. When you do, we will send you a gift you can pick from at our site. Again, thisishell.com and then click on support. Thanks this week goes to Magnificent Me, the religious tithing commitment of Brett and Eric, who writes, hey, y'all, just became a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. Got to get my This Is Hell mug to go with it y'all are the best you too can become a patreon patron and get all our gifts the this is hell trucker cap t-shirt tote bag coffee mug all our stuff for donations of five dollars less than non-subscribers thanks to everyone who supported this is hell this week and in the coming days weeks months and years too many years of the Trump administration your support will be needed more than ever if you want to be thanked on air support this is hell and get this is hell swag go to this is hell.com click on support the Green New Deal is dealing with misrepresentation and criticism from both the right and the left but it's not as simple as workers are against it environmentalists are for it because there's plenty of unions that back the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez proposal and plenty of radical environmental groups that are opposed We'll consider all the critiques and uncover the misrepresentations when we hear from historian Aviva Chomsky, who wrote the TomDispatch.com piece, Jobs, the Environment and a Planet in Crisis, Unions versus Environmentalists, or Unions and Environmentalists. Alex, do you want to tell us what you've been up to on social media, or do you want to push that to the next block? It's up to you, my friend. Uh, it takes me double the amount of time to put guests on uh, the phone in the new studio, so uh, maybe let's just run into a question from hell. All right, so we'll just run. We'll uh, push that till later. Um, join me, Alex, everybody today, shortly after the show is over, for the closing of This Is Art 2019, our annual art show that opens every July during our annual listener appreciation party. If you missed the party, come see the art. If you were at the party, see the art one last time and meet some of the artists whose work is on display. That's the This Is Art 2019 closing party at Second Story Studios Art Gallery, the gallery we share a space with above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, where we are broadcasting right now in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood that closing of This Is Art 2019 happens today, Saturday, August 31st, from 2 p.m. to 7 p.m. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what is the United States Wi-Fi password? What is the United States Wi-Fi password? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, and you still will have a chance to win this week's prize, which is a book that we featured on last week's show by award-winning author Ibram X. Kendi called How to Be an Anti-Racist. Ibram will be here this Friday September 6th at uh, 7 p.m. in the Evanston Township High School Auditorium at 1600 Dodge Avenue to discuss the, this book. He will be interviewed by Marcus Campbell, the assistant superintendent and principal at ETHS. That's Ibram X. Kendi talking about how to be an anti-racist. 
Friday at 7 p.m. in the Evanston Township High School Auditorium at 1600 Dodge Avenue. Find out more about this event at familyactionnetwork.net. Again, the question from Al, what is the United States uh, Wi-Fi password? Alex, you have all the answers to this week's question because... Uh, question from Mel is, what is the United States' Wi-Fi password? Let me turn my mic up a little. Okay, uh, Shane M. says, this is hell, 1776, pound sign. <laughs> Anthony P. says, password. <laughs> Ladio says, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Walter B. says, RIP, 776-2016. <laughs> William C. says, 1684 MAGA. Eric Trump's birthday followed by MAGA to let you make it more secure and stuff. It was a presidential dog's birthday, but with Trump, we all make do. <laughs> Torvald C. says, 123 genocide, asterisk. <laughs> Who's that? Uh, Torvald C. Okay. Benjamin C. says, insecure. <laughs> Lisa B. says, S-show, dumpster fire. <laughs> Greg G says, freedom ampersand genocide. Christy A says, by SH, uh, exclamation mark, T, 24 7. I can say that on the radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Marcus L says, unvaccinated missile buddy. <laughs> Braden S says, whatever random characters were brought on that little card with a modem when you first bought it, but you keep losing the damn card even though you swear you put it under the fridge magnet. Guess you got to keep leeching off the neighbors. Sounds like a Braden S problem. <laughs> uh, Wally R says, KKK MAGA 2020. Uh, RN H says, not racist AF, JK. Lawrence M says, Pepe, Pepe 1488. Uh, Jesse W says, admin. <laughs> Steven S says, Yang Dude Bro 42069, to totes not an empire. Jeff T says, money. Kyle J says, America, 1776. And then, obviously, 69420. Lisa C says, password. Fergus F says, the entire unbroken Pledge of Allegiance, including the secret paragraph about blood for the blood god. <laughs> Donald H says, oh, geez, John, Donald. Uh, let me come back to that one. That was uh, really hard to read. This is a, a, a hidden. Can you spot the flaw in this question? Yes. Uh, what is the United States' Wi-Fi password? Jeff Dorchin says, all you can eat. <laughs> Uh, Marco G says, user, uh, name is for America only, and password is we fight for liberty, 69. Uh, Tom H says, uh, Rob Rape Reeve. <laughs> Damn. Uh, Michael W says, America kicks ass. Jessica B says, Aquanet toupee, all one word, no caps. <laughs> Pete V says, we have no Wi-Fi, man. That requires infrastructure spending. <laughs> Zachary A says, super secret password, man. Bilal K says... KKK123. You're not going to forget that one. No. Christine M says, literally, nice try, FBI, because the Wi-Fi is run by the NSA, and it's clearly a childish in-joke. Marty P says, Marty P says, Germany number one. <laughs> Marty P? Yeah. Uh, is that is the Germany number one? Is his last name Preeb? No. Okay, good, because uh, that would be our former beat cop who's now the second in charge of the Fraternal Order of Police, sorry, and that would be sorry. really scaring the hell out of me. Sorry, Marty Parib. Uh Jeremy T says, uh, well, geez, Jeremy. He wrote, I heart boobies, 69. Uh, Philip C says, Kofifi. Steve S says, E pluribus Buffett. Hmm. Uh, Mark C says, Trump will F you too. Ein H says, Eagle Balls. 45. <laughs> Eric T says Fabio for Prez 0123. And finally, Aaron D says self determination 1619. I'm not going to look up. Oh, yeah, 1619. Okay, I get mm. you. 
Good. My response to this week's question from hell, which is similar to somebody else's response, what is the United States Wi-Fi password? It's 325EQ8 ampersand capital F colon quote marks open bracket 98FG2 and it goes on and on and on until the United because the United States is it's just like lazy old people who never change their password to something simple because they're afraid somebody's going to hack their pictures of the grandkids grandkids they never see and they really don't like spoiled brats to be honest with you yep the United States is just like those grandparents angry and paranoid and hating young people that makes this week's winner of the question from hell again which is what is the united states wi-fi password two people lisa c and anthony p both said password if one had i might have selected password jesse w saying admin i like that uh jeff dorchin saying all you can eat but jeff dorchin cannot win the question from hell as he is part of the this is hell crew so I'm going to go with Marty P saying Germany number one. I don't know. I, I just liked Germany number one. Uh, Marty P, you have won Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. See Ibram this Friday, September 6th, discussing how to be an anti-racist at 7 p.m. in the Evanston Township High School Auditorium at 1600 Dodge Avenue. Ibram will be interviewed by Marcus Campbell, the assistant superintendent and principal at ETHS. And Marty, if you send us your address ASAP, we'll send you the book on Monday, and then you'll have it by Friday so you can go attend this event and actually get a National Book Award-winning author to autograph the book. Thanks to everyone for coming out to our weekly meet and greet, which is more a drink and think. This is how Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251. One West Devon, drop by, drink, hang out, watch me drink, get some free This Is Hell subvertising stickers and free show-related books. Thanks this week goes out to Leo, Alex, Jonah, Wally, Ronaldo, Micah, John, Johnny. Oh, man, there were just so many people there, and I really can't remember. Jordan, Elliot, Shelley, Theron, lots of people were here this week. I know I'm forgetting a few other people because this has been a really, really, really grueling last few weeks of the show and doing other show-related stuff. So join us Wednesday evenings at Carrie's Lounge from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. for This Is Hell office hours. Drop by, have a drink, get a free show-related book, and some This Is Hell advertising stickers. Hell, check out our new nearly completed studios that I am broadcasting from, we are broadcasting from right now, and get some This Is Hell merch every Wednesday at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon on in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, come on by, meet other listeners of This Is Hell. Meet Mel, our semi-feral cat, every Wednesday. This Is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the misrepresentations and divides over the Green New Deal are not only on the right. The left is having its own issues with the proposal. During the moment of truth, Jeff looks too closely at spiders, which may be very 
very weird. We'll also tell you what we've been doing on our weekly podcast exclusively for subscribers of This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online, as well as what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Anything else we want to do? We might want to get to uh, listener feedback. Alex might be telling you what he's been up to on social media. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. Alex Jerry, the planet's on fire. So, yes, this is hell. The Green New Deal has been the target of misrepresentations, and not only on the right, but the left, too. The narrative going around the media is labor is against it, and environmentalists are for the proposal. But our next guest also, or our next guest has found unions supporting the Green New Deal and radical environmentalists who oppose it. Here to help us get a better grip on all the good and bad criticism around the Green New Deal Latin American scholar and historian Aviva Chomsky wrote the TomDispatch.com article, Jobs, the Environment and a Planet in Crisis, Unions versus Environmentalists or Unions and Environmentalists. Welcome to This Is Hell, Aviva. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you for being on our show. Aviva is professor of history and coordinator of Latin American studies at Salem State University in Massachusetts and a Tom Dispatch regular where you can find all of her writing again at Tom Dispatch. Dot com. You write that when it comes to heat, extreme weather, wildfires, and melting glaciers, the planet is now in what the media increasingly refers to as record territory as climate changes, momentum outpasses predictions. In such a situation, in a country whose president and administration seem hell-bent on doing everything they can conceivably can to make matters worse, the Green New Deal seems to offer at least a modest opening to a path forward. And since you posted your article at Tom Dispatch earlier this month, the Trump administration has made all sorts of new anti-environmental policy statements, including, as the Washington Post reported on Thursday, the Environmental Protection Agency announced that it plans to loosen federal rules on methane, a powerful greenhouse gas linked to climate change. To what extent is the Trump administration already undermining the goals of the Green New Deal. Is the Green New Deal becoming, is there the threat of it becoming increasingly obsolete as President Trump makes increasingly more anti-environmental policies? Um, No, I wouldn't say it's becoming more obsolete. I would say it's becoming more urgent. Um, But I would also have to say that it was urgent even before the Trump presidency. That is, yes, things have gotten a lot worse under Trump, but it's not like previous administrations were really making any strides in the right direction. Um, U.S. Uh, has higher per capita emissions, carbon emissions, than almost any other country in the world. And very little has been done. Um, In fact, the United States has been more of an obstruction to global climate agreements. And even the most progressive, um, if we can even use that word to describe any U.S. administration, that is certainly there were particular um, policies implemented, especially limiting emissions from coal plant, coal-fired power plants that have been slowly working into place over the years and that have reduced um, U.S. dependence on coal. Um, we still mine coal for export. Uh, we, we don't like to mention that. 
um, even though we're burning less of it year the, uh, here, so it doesn't get counted against our carbon emissions, even if we're the ones mining it. Um, but coal mining has also um, fallen in the United States. Uh, but in terms of actually making significant reductions in our admission, emissions, um, that's not happening. Um, the switch from coal to nat natural gas, which has been ongoing um, up until this past year of the Trump administration when we were kind of moving back into use of coal, uh, did create a slight decline in emissions. But that's not a trajectory. That's a one-time switch from coal to natural gas. And we're still continuing to use about, to burn about 25% of the world's fossil fuel resources. And you mentioned, obviously, the uh, uh, information that I think a lot of people know, and that is that in the United States, we have the highest per capita greenhouse gas emissions. And that includes, amongst other Western industrialized countries that you might think would be comparable to our greenhouse gas emissions. To you, what explains why the United States has such high greenhouse gas emissions? Is it and I'm sure it's a combination of many things, but is it more political policy? Is it more culture? What is it that drives Americans to have the highest per capita greenhouse gas emissions? So it, of course, as you say, is due to um, a combination of factors. Um, and I would also mention that like, when we look at greenhouse gas emissions, we often tend to focus only on the um, energy production sector, like power plants that, pro that, that provide electricity. Um, but our emissions actually come from more than that. Transportation is now the largest sector in terms of um, greenhouse gas emissions in the United States, and that includes not only individual cars, but um, uh, air travel, uh, long-distance trucking. Um, so, so there's the whole transportation sector, which is a very large emitter. There's the whole agricultural sector, um, which is a very large emitter. And there's the whole industrial sector. So uh, power generation is only one of four major areas that we should be looking at. And, but the United States is excessive in, in all of those areas. Um, and again, to the extent that, that our emissions have somewhat declined, um, and again, that has, again, been reversed, but uh, uh, the switch from coal to natural gas is one reason. And another reason, and this applies to European countries as well, that have been more consistent in their what we call decoupling of economic growth with uh, CO2 emissions, uh, has been the outsourcing of industrial production. So if we move our dirty factories, just like when we export our coal to other countries, uh, we can still be making the profits we can still be consuming the goods, but the carbon emissions get counted against the poor country where uh, our our factories are relocating. And this is the point that you make in... Um, I'm sorry. This is the point that you make in your article about labor unions, too, that this is what they fear. When labor unions have been opposed to things like the Green New Deal, they fear that uh, the climate change causing emissions are not going to go away, that they're just going to be shifted to a different place. How do we view the critique that labor unions have uh, that might be seen as anti-Green New Deal differently when we see it as one that is a criticism of the outsourcing of 
of that fossil fuel industry rather than an elimination of it? Um, well, I would say that the prime concern of labor unions, and um, I don't think there's any labor union that is actually against the Green New Deal, just as with many environmental organizations, I would say that uh, there's many, there's some labor unions that have enthusiastically embraced the Green New Deal, but there's also many labor unions, especially in some of the sectors that are the biggest carbon emitters, like um, mining, heavy industry, uh, that that have serious reservations about the Green New Deal. And the biggest reservations I think that they have, like you mentioned one of them, they're definitely concerned about outsourcing um, for environmental reasons, but also because of job loss. Um, and if you look at what's been happening to the labor movement in the United States over the last, say, 30, 40 years, um, it's been a pretty grim story of attack and defeat. Um, so that the unionized sector of the economy has shrunk. Um, good jobs are disappearing. Um, the economic recovery after 2008, after the recession, um, has been called a jobless recovery. And to the extent that more jobs are being created, they're not good jobs. Many of them are part-time jobs, temporary jobs, um, low-wage jobs, jobs uh, that don't have the, the security and protections that most people want to have from their jobs, things like health plans and pension plans. Um, so both the labor movement as an organized movement, organized labor, and workers in general have been under almost continuous attack. So the Green New Deal certainly contains language that would try to address the interests of organized labor in terms of guaranteeing union jobs and union rights um, and of workers in general. And those two aren't always completely identical because such a small percentage, um, just over 10% of the labor force in the United States actually belongs to a union. Um, but but it's hard for the unions and for workers to believe those words when they have seen what's happened when coal plants close, when coal mines close, when factories close. The interests of the workers are first to be sold out. So um, companies might get bailed out, but workers and their pension plans are not getting bailed out. Why should we, this is kind of a silly question, but I just want to make sure people understand. Why should we be concerned about how these weakened labor unions feel about the Green New Deal? Even though labor unions are weakened in the United States, to what extent do they still have power or influence over policymaking? Well, um, I mean, I think there's two reasons why we should be concerned, and one is the one that you just mentioned, um, the extent to which they have power influence over policymaking, but two is a moral and ethical reason in that they are the only voice in the public sphere that is representing the interests of workers. So so that's important, even if they have very little influence. Um, workers are the vast majority of the population. Um, you know, democracy means more than voting. It means having a voice. And one of the ways that we have a voice is through organizations like organized labor. Um, so they have the capacity to mobilize people. But and and they have a long history of developing systems of making voices heard. Uh, so, 
um, I would say that within that that one of the strengths of the labor movement has been its ability to mobilize votes. And in that respect, it's very a very important constituent of the Democratic Party. And in that respect, it um, does wield a, a political power um, greater than its numbers would would suggest you... in terms of numbers of actual union members. Union members are, are very um, active voters, and they're active uh, uh, political citizens. Since your article was posted, the Bernie Sanders campaign announced their kind of Green New Deal. As CNBC reported on Thursday, Sanders upended the climate change debate in the Democratic 2020 primary when he proposed a staggering $16.3 trillion federal investment over 15 years in renewable energy and public infrastructure. It is by far the largest proposal by any of the candidates in the field. Sanders' plan aims to reach 100% renewable transportation and electric by 2030. Most significantly, Sanders' plan calls for a total end to federal investment and subsidies in the fossil fuel industry, which companies, uh, which comprises the bulk of the American energy sector. Sanders' plan eschews nuclear energy development entirely, instead proposing a gradual phasing out of nuclear energy reliance. Has Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Edward Markey's Green New Deal come to life to any degree within the Bernie Sanders climate policy? Do you see a connection between the two or one being influenced by the other? Um, Absolutely, I see a connection between the two. And I would say that um, the plan proposed by uh, Ocasio-Cortez and Markey was a first step. And Bernie Sanders takes it to the next level with his proposal. some of the objections or, or reservations, I could say, that uh, both the labor movement and the environmental movement expressed about the Ocasio-Cortez Markey proposal um, are being directly addressed by Bernie Sanders. And I have to say that the um, the original Green New Deal proposal, the Ocasio-Cortez and Markey proposal, didn't necessarily preclude some of the um, the things that are actually articulated in the Bernie Sanders. It what it did is open the door, um, and now Bernie has walked through the door and taken the next step. So, so I don't see the two plans, the two proposals, as in conflict, really, but as in dialogue. Um, but in terms of guarantees for workers, I would say that Bernie's plan is more um, more concrete, and. Uh, there are two major issues that environmental organizations had raised about the original Green New Deal proposal. Um, one is its uh, its reluctance to directly attack the fossil fuel industry, or even to say that we're going to stop using fossil fuels to to um, adhere to the the slogan "Keep it in the ground." That it just has to stay in the ground. Um, the uh, so so Bernie's plan does that. He says no fossil fuels, phase out fossil fuels, period. Um, so again, that is being more explicit and going beyond something that was perhaps implicit or possible in the original proposal but wasn't completely spelled out. Um, the other thing is the role of nuclear energy. That is, the Ocasio-Cortez uh, Markey plan um, allowed for the use of nuclear energy by its language of clean and renewable sources. So in terms of carbon emissions, nuclear energy is clean. That is, it doesn't emit carbon. Of course, 
nuclear energy creates all kinds of other environmental problems, but in terms of carbon emissions, it's clean. So uh, many environmental organizations, well, environmental organizations, I guess I would say, are divided. Some feel that nuclear energy is absolutely crucial uh, to get off carbon quickly and uh, to get off fossil fuels quickly, and some feel that nuclear is no alternative. Um, What we're not really seeing, and I think we need to see, is uh, a discussion of our energy use altogether. And I'm really glad um, at the way that the Bernie Sanders plan also attacked or or raised the transportation sector. Um, I think industry and agriculture also have to be discussed. But um, I wanted to go back to a question you raised a few minutes ago that I didn't get a chance to answer. I hope I have a couple minutes um, just to go back to it because I was formulating the answer and then we moved on so quickly. But why is the United States such an outlier? Why do we use so much more than anybody else? Um, So let me just name a number of reasons, and they all kind of intersect with each other. One is the military. The military is a huge consumer of fossil fuels and carbon emitter, and our military is exponentially larger than any other military in the world, and it's also more active uh, in terms of the destruction that it causes around the world and the fossil fuels that it burns in doing so. So that's one reason. Um, Two is that our levels of individual consumption are higher than elsewhere in the world, both in terms of transportation. Uh, I mean, visit any other major world city and you're going to see an excellent public transportation system and a lot of people not using cars. Visit any place in the United States, everybody is going to be in their car. And not only that, they're going to be stuck in traffic. So we, um, we have chosen as a country to invest in private consumption in transportation and not to invest in public transportation, whereas Japan, Europe, other industrialized countries have chosen to invest less in private transportation. And that includes um, gasoline is a lot more expensive for filling up cars because it's not it's taxed rather than subsidized, whereas here it's really cheap because it's subsidized. And that's what I mean by we've chosen to invest. Um, We tend to live in much larger houses that are much farther away from each other. And again, this is a result of policy. This is a result of public investment in the construction of suburbs, um, in the uh, abandonment of inner cities. This has to do with race, the way a lot of these decisions were made with the investment in the highway system uh, and in the way that public transportation has been abandoned. Uh, A lot of this really does have to do with race and the racial history of this country, which is also quite different from that of the European countries and Japan, if you're trying to compare us to those. Um, We also are a huge country um, our popula- we have a very low population density, which means that we live much further apart, and we also um, have much stronger – we have huge reserves of fossil fuel, and we also have huge agribusiness, which is partly connected to how our low population density. Um, and that both makes us produce a lot of fossil fuel and devote a lot of land to industrial agriculture, and it gives those uh, those industries huge lobbying power that – prevent us from regulating them the way they are regulated in the uh, political systems of of Europe and Japan. So we have um, developed a system 
and we've sold that system to the population that's based very much on individual overconsumption and a belief in that the only thing the government should be spending money on is the military. Can the Green New Deal defeat car culture, or is car culture so embedded in the, an American identity that uh, that's its biggest obstacle? Well, I'm not sure that the Green New Deal can defeat car culture, but we must defeat car culture. We just have to defeat car culture if we want to have a planet for our children and our grandchildren that our children and our grandchildren can survive on. So I think the question is, how can we defeat car culture? Obviously, the Green New Deal alone is not going to do it, but a major investment in public transportation infrastructure, um, including high-speed rail um, and local public transportation, is one step. And if you visit a major city in Europe or Asia, um, you you see how a really strong, efficient, clean uh, public transportation system, that is, people don't like being stuck in traffic in their cars. They just don't have an alternative. Um, so investing in the alternative is the first step towards getting people out of our cars. Now, we also have to regulate the fossil fuel industry and the automobile industry. Instead of rewarding them for making us pollute more, we should reward them for making us pollute less. Um, we should punish them for making us pollute more. And obviously, our politics shouldn't be as beholden to special interests like the automobile and fossil fuel industries. You were mentioning earlier how the Bernie Sanders uh, climate change plan seemed to have stemmed from, in certain ways, the Green New Deal. You point out in throughout your article that the Green New Deal was merely a 14-page proposal. It wasn't actually a completely formed and as concrete, as you were saying, as concrete as the Sanders plan. Do you think that the intent was by AOC, by Markey, the intent of the Green New Deal was to get the conversation going already. After all, AOC is constantly saying and being quoted saying that the conversation that is the most important and is being missed the most in today's political debate and discussion is global warming. So was and is the Green New, Green Deal, Green New Deal's intent to get the debate going more than do this? Is that, and is that conversation still, even after the Bernie Sanders plan has is is been announced, is that conversation still ongoing? Absolutely, that conversation is still ongoing. Um, and remember also that the AOC Markey plan was proposed to Congress. So um, they were putting it on the table to be discussed in Congress, whereas Bernie's plan is more like a wish list, like this is what I want to do. Um, he's not constrained by how are we going to get votes in Congress for this right now. Um, right now he's in a campaign. So, so he's in a very different position than people who are proposing something into Congress. And what's proposed into Congress is put out there to be in order to be elaborated and debated um, and sometimes weakened. But that's our job to make sure that it's strengthened instead of weakened if it even can go on to the debate. And I also want to point out that the um, – the Democrats just 
decided not to allow the the Democratic primary candidates to have a debate on climate change. So the party itself is obstructionist uh, in terms of having this conversation and pushing the debate forward and moving towards the actual kinds of policies that we need. Um, And this also indicates the importance of Bernie Sanders, who's really an outlier in the party. Um, He's not a party man. He's running in the Democratic primary, but he has long been an independent, um, and he's not beholden to the party in the way I would say every single other candidate is really a a, a loyal party person. Um, and that gives Sanders the, the the freedom to propose a truly radical plan. But I have to say that the Green New Deal, uh, the 14-page proposal by AOC and Markey is also a radical plan. Um, it's not completely fleshed out because it's calling for the making of a fleshed out plan. Um, But Congress won't even allow that to be discussed. So, I mean, this is where we are in terms of obstructionism. Um, And I also just have to mention that Elizabeth Warren also responded uh, to the Green New Deal with um, one of the most embarrassing articles that I've seen by her on a Green New Deal for the military, which uh, talks about how we can increase our military strength by reducing the military's dependence on fossil fuel. And it's all about putting solar panels on our bases all over the world, when what we need to do is shut down our bases all over the world. So um, so everybody's talking about the Green New Deal. We need to talk about it more, and we need to start implementing it. We need to agree, be able to come to an agreement to start implementing it. I want to get back to the Democratic Party question in just a second, but before I ask you that, you write that many of the 600 signers of a letter outlining the radical environmental critique of the Green New Deal were small local or faith-based organizations, some of the large mainstream environmental groups like the Sierra Club, the Natural Resources Defense Council, and the Environmental Defense Fund were conspicuously absent from the signatories. Before I continue with that quote, what does that tell you about those organizations, Sierra Club, Natural Resources Defense Council, Environmental Defense Fund, when they are not even offering any kind of positive or negative critique of what's happening with the Green New Deal? Um, well, most of those organizations are supporting the Green New Deal. That is, they didn't sign the letter. The letter, um, the letter I would say, is a friendly offers some friendly amendments and and critiques to the Green New Deal. Um, it says it wants the Green New Deal to be stronger, just as the labor critiques have said we want the Green New Deal to be stronger. Um, the environmental critique and the labor critique aren't really um, at odds with each other. They're focusing on different aspects of the Green New Deal, but basically they're both saying this is great, but we need more. Um, we need we need to go further than than just what it says here. Um, there have been some outliers in the labor movement um, and in the environmental movement that have been unremittingly negative, but the but by far the majority of the critiques I would say have been friendly critiques, saying, "Great start, but we need more." And- um, I'm sorry. And you write that others like Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, 350.org, the Sunrise Movement, the Rainforest Action Network, the Indigenous Environmental Network, and Amazon Watch did, however, sign on. So notably, did the Labor Network for Sustainability, the most radical uh, voice in the labor movement, working in support of climate change action. So on the labor side, some are upset that the Green New Deal doesn't protect jobs. On the environmental side, some say the Green New Deal doesn't go far enough. 
in your opinion, can the Green New Deal, and maybe is this already being implemented within the Sanders plan, can it go as far as many environmental organizers want it to go and protect the livelihoods, if not necessarily the jobs of those whose work will be affected by the Green New Deal? Can they find that balance? Well, that's an interesting question, and it depends what you mean by can. That is, um, is it technologically possible? Is it theoretically possible? Absolutely. The big question is, is it politically possible? Um, that is, you know, we're talking about the, the friendly criticisms, the, the labor and environmental critiques, but there are huge uh, manufacturers, fossil fuels, uh, chamber of commerce, um, huge uh, political obstacles um, and politicians who are beholden to big business in all forms. That is, in some ways, the Green New Deal attacks the um, the largest economic interests in our country by saying you cannot continue to make profits off of destroying the planet. And we have to organize our economy differently so that it works not just for the 1%, but for the planet and for the 99%. Now, the 1% wield uh, way disproportionate political power. So the question is, when you ask, is it possible, how are we going to get past these economic interests and the politicians that are beholden to these economic interests? But if you want to ask, is it is it technologically possible? Um, do we have the resources to do this? There's no question that we do. Aviva, I have really enjoyed our conversation. I've still got one last question for you. We have been speaking with Latin America scholar and historian Aviva Chomsky, who wrote the TomDispatch.com piece, Jobs, the Environment, and a Planet in Crisis, Unions versus Environmentalists, or Unions and Environmentalists. Aviva is professor of history and coordinator of Latin American studies at Salem State University in Massachusetts, and a Tom Dispatch regular, where you can find her writing at TomDispatch.com. Dot com. One last question, as we do with all of our guests, Aviva, our final question is the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. And it's mostly a follow-up to a question uh, earlier that you were already answering, but uh, I'd already written it as the question from hell, so there you go. <laughs> so, uh, Uh-oh, now I'm getting nervous. <laughs> what, what does it say to you about the Democratic Party when they did decide, as you pointed out, to not have the focus of any of their presidential candidate nomination debates being on climate change, as Jay Inslee and others had demanded. What does it say to you about the state of the Democratic Party when they're not having that debate? Or is the uh, concerns over that lack of debate exaggerated? The Democratic Party is beholden to corporate interests. And I think we knew that before this. Um, it's just one more confirmation, but it's not like it's new news um, to any of us. Um, and, you know, much as I am a supporter of Bernie Sanders and am planning to vote, I always vote, uh, I don't think that we can rest our hopes in the Democratic Party for the kind of structural, social, and economic change that we urgently and absolutely need to make. Um, so I think we need to we need to think way beyond the Democratic Party 
And we need to get beyond the discourse that blames Donald Trump for everything that's happening. Much as I dislike Donald Trump personally, um, he is not the root of our problems. He's just one little manifestation of the problems. And we need to we need to be conceptualizing political action as going far beyond supporting the Democratic Party. Aviva, I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation this afternoon, and I really look forward to having you back on the show in the future. People can find your writing at TomDispatch.com, and I will be finding it there regularly as well. Thank you so much for being on our show. Oh, thanks a lot for having me. Take care. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio so clearly and sadly Aviva's dad has gone insane. Join me today shortly after the show is over for the closing of This Is Art 2019, our annual art show that opens every July during our annual listener appreciation party. If you missed the party, come see the art. If you were at the party, see the art one last time and meet some of the artists whose work is on display. That's the This Is Art 2019 closing party at Second Story Studios Art Gallery, the gallery we share a space with above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. That's today from 2 p.m. to 7 p.m. right outside this door to my studio. In a moment, during the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin... What's he doing? Staring at spiders real too close? That's creepy. Speaking of our horrible business model where we stupidly put people before profits, on Patreon this week I proved what an anti-capitalist I am by being really bad at capitalism during my appearance on the Michael Brooks show live on stage last Saturday at Chicago's Lincoln Hall. It wasn't like I was getting paid, so the whole point of me being there was promotional, but I'm awful at branding and marketing myself, so subscribe at patreon.com slash thisishell to hear me explain exactly what a lousy self-promoter and capitalist I am. And we also played our April 2011 interview on our Patreon podcast this week uh, with uh, historian and foreign policy analyst James Peck, author of Ideal Illusions, How the U.S. Government Co-opted Human Rights. There's nothing the United States won't co-opt, or should I say capitalism, and yes, human rights are yet another thing our political economic system here in the States has devoured. But you can only hear me telling you how I screwed up on the Michael Brooks show and James explaining how the U.S. stole the concept of human rights and appropriated it for its own imperial use by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishealth. Special thanks this week for joining us as new Patreon patrons goes to John, Amanda, Andy, and Sean. Thanks for joining us on Patreon this week. If you want to support truly independent media and keep us completely independent, we take no grants, we take no advertising money, we are not beholden to anyone, which is more than can be said for a lot of what you think are alternative media outlets but are not. Support This Is Hell by becoming a This Is Hell subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell and every week get exclusive content only for subscribers that includes access to live streaming content you cannot get otherwise. That's This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up on this week's show, during the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin looks far too closely at spiders. We also want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online, as well as tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I doubt it, but we might get to listener feedback on what Alex has been up to on social media, or I should say on social industry sites. 
I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show host, Chuck Mertz, producing Alex Jerry and Leo O'Connell. I didn't see him until just a couple of minutes ago. We have a much smaller window between the two interview booth and the producer's room than we did over at WNUR. Alex, I know you have Hefe on the line. I'm certain. Of it. The spiders. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Spiders are spinning their webs in the grass. Pretty tiny black jumping spiders with turquoise rings around their abdomens. Spiders have spinneret glands to poop out their web strands. That's one way to do it, I guess. Kids with excellent eyesight can watch the spiders spin. So can old people who once had good eyesight but now have excellent reading glasses. From the vantage point of the kids, it all looks like an arachnid multi-scene diorama. The spiders appear to be weaving rustic booths in the grass, tiny bamboo booths with roofs of foliage, like tiny sukkahs for Sukkot, the harvest festival. These are Jewish spiders. Their turquoise comes from their retired uncle Nate in Arizona. One spider... I don't know if he's Jewish or not, spins his webs out of gold. His name is Epstein. I heard the story about Epstein on The Daily, the New York Times podcast, hosted by Michael Barbaro. It was one of many gruesome tales I've read or heard about this gold-spinning spider. Like the stories about him, like all stories about him, it's appalling. I don't even like thinking about them, any of them, but this one especially sickens me. Nevertheless... It should be known so that you can understand only the smallest fraction of the way Epstein wielded his wealth. It's illustrative of the weaponization of power through not only wealth inequality, but gender inequality and age inequality and a slew of other inequalities that come together to make up status inequality. This is the story of an artist in her mid-20s, so she wasn't under the age of majority as many of Epstein's victims were. We'll leave behind the spider metaphor for a bit, though we'll come back to it. Maria was an artist, not a spider. The only reason I couple spiders in the story of Maria is that what Epstein did to Maria was a violation, and the thing I think of when I think of good things being violated is industrious, busy spiders of the variety I've described above, weaving their tiny succote in their tiny diorama world in the grass, and that impulse of pure endeavor being invaded by conquistadors. It's a world like that one being violated, a world of effort and beauty, of individual and communal spirit, and of ritual being violated by a creature weaving webs of gold and injecting his prey with venom that liquefies their insides for him to drink. Maria did paintings depicting often subtly disturbing narrative scenes, Slices of narratives frozen in time in which she employed nude studies, sometimes of girls in their early teens, and she was gaining notoriety in the New York art scene at the time in question. She's originally from Kentucky and studied art in various schools across the country and in France and at the New York Academy of Art. I have a friend, we'll call him BG for privacy purposes, and about the same time as, or a few years earlier than Maria, 
B.G. was becoming known in the art world. His paintings, too, when he first burst on the scene, were narrative. His were monochromatic, large-format pencil paintings of surreal scenes, often involving nudity, teenage alcohol and drug use, sex, and sundry details both banal and fantastic that somehow brought across a sad past looked back on in anxious, immature, haunted memories. I want to describe one of BG's early pieces I saw at a New York gallery show, a piece illustrating a comical, embarrassing, fraught memory. He told me the story behind it. In his early teens, he'd invited a girl over and was fairly certain they were going to have sex. But he was a little shy about having no pubic hair at his age, so he glued some of his head hair right above his penis. And that's the painting, all in shades of gray-green pencil on butcher paper, just the section of his body between his belly button and his thighs, no explanation, his hands brushing rubber cement on and about to place a tiny, thready mustache on his lower abdomen above his genitals. I don't know if Maria was working through similar memories in her art or similar emotional transformations from childhood to adulthood, but she was living in her visual sense of mind and experience, building little scenes like dioramas, some of which seemed charged with the threat of sexual violence. One in particular, she says, was inspired by Degas, and it's been referred to as kind of rapey. And that was one of Epstein, that was the one Epstein's henchwoman, Yislaine Maxwell, or Yelaine, spotted. I believe her name is pronounced with a Greek fast food G, like the one at the beginning of Yiros. When Maxwell saw the rapey painting, Maria says, Maxwell told Maria she had just the buyer for it, and that was who Maria was going to sell it to, and to no one else, and Epstein the Spider, Epstein the Spider, who had already woven his big web of gold and influence in the New York art scene, that was who bought it. Maria first employed, was first employed as Epstein's art procurer, and then as his door person, sending up teenage girls and old lascivious men to Epstein and Maxwell. Maria was always told that the girls were being sent up for auditions or meetings of one type or another. Maria says her unwitting role in this charade pains her to this day. It's not easy to make your living by making art, especially if your art is personal. It's an incredible gift to be able to work out your demons and angels, your memories, or even just your interests and imaginings, and be recognized and paid for it. It's a dream come true, unless it's a gift used as bait in a spider's web, a false promise in an Epstein's web. Eventually, according to Maria's affidavit, Epstein and Maxwell manipulated both her and her 15-year-old sister into situations of extreme discomfort. Maria says she was sexually assaulted by Maxwell and Epstein, and that Maxwell threatened to destroy her art and her career after her father came up from Kentucky and drove her away from the awful situation she was in. There's a quotation I return to from time to time. It's on the opening pages of suicidal author Juan Butler's truly unhinged book, The Garbage Man. I do not advise reading this book. I abridge the quotation below for comprehensibility. Question. Tell me, in the anarchist society that you envisage, where all men will be free, where no one will ever be in a position to impose his will upon his fellow man, where doing your own thing will be the norm rather than the exception, who will pick up the garbage? Answer. 
the garbage man. The garbage collector in the nomenclature of today. The garbage collector will pick up the garbage when it's their turn, not because society threatens them with starvation, homelessness, and the myriad ravages of poverty. Now, in our world, those are the incentives. It's how otherwise good-hearted, industrious people get swindled, coerced, raped, and destroyed. The threat hangs over everything. Even the very wealthy feel it. That's why they fear so viscerally losing their status. That's why they have a compulsion to accrue more and more like a child of the Great Depression at an all-you-can-eat buffet. It's Epstein the Spider's predatory opportunism with which he exploited Maria's good faith and dreams that makes me sick. Of course, his using the same strategy in order to rape girls also makes me sick. It's the force. Have you felt it? The coercive force of obligation to your benefactor? Don't bite the hand that feeds you. It feeds you, after all, so it must be a kind hand, even if it sometimes places itself between your legs and expects you to comply with every whim. How dare you refuse? Have you no gratitude? And eventually, do you not know that we can destroy you? It may never be possible or even desirable to remove status inequality from all societies. It's a positive thing, for example, when a patient's organs are failing, that a doctor who has accumulated an immense knowledge and skill in curing diseased organs should be deferred to over, say, a careening golf cart full of drunk currency speculators, regardless of their collective self-confidence. Just as it would be desirable to allow Superman to address the opening of canned goods when a group of otherwise helpless earthlings are stranded on an island without a can opener. Let him open the cans. What do you think you have to prove? And of course, the abuse of status inequality is possible in almost any situation wherein such equality exists. And it often is abused. And I think there are two ways to remedy this undesirable situation. One, identify and then inhibit neutralize or destroy sets of criteria that raise the status of people vis-a-vis -vis others unjustifiably. And here, wealth inequality, the artificial merit of having more money than others, seems a perfect example. And two, try your hardest to be responsible with whatever power you have over others. For whatever reason, be they people, plants, animals, buildings, celestial bodies, or other. Defuse opportunities for abuse of power. Where inequality is unavoidable, be a spider in good faith. It sounds so simple, but nothing is ever simple. Every strand is tangled. Only patience and diligence will ever sort them out. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day. Live from land stolen from the natives, this is hell. There's a fly in the studio. How the hell oh, did that happen? Oh, because you didn't have enough spiders. Hey, that's a good point. And very nice callback. Hey, listen, uh, <laughs> I have some leftover stuff that I want to share with you. I did that uh, The Michael Brooks Show podcast yeah. last week at, uh, on Saturday over at uh, Lincoln Hall. And I want to tell you the two best things I overheard that mm -hmm. evening. The the second best I mentioned already was when I heard somebody in the lobby oh, right, say, right. it's like, wow, I never knew I was a Marxist. <laughs> I just like that. It's like, yeah. it just like it just suddenly happened, like he was shaving or something, went, wait. Oh, my goodness. Oh, no. Oh, that's OK. That's Marxism. Right, right. I just hope it didn't happen while he was masturbating. The other one was, and this is far, far better. 
it is really pretty boss to say this and then get the reaction that you do. I was with one of, I was with the other guest, a guy by the name of Gene. I can't remember anything else because I'm very self-centered. Uh, and Gene uh, was, he and I were talking and all of a sudden a listener showed up and, or a listener to the Michael Brooks show showed up and was just standing there staring at us, just staring and staring and staring. And finally Gene just said, excuse me, what's your name? Uh, uh, are you here to see the show? And he's like, yes. He goes, I'm a huge fan of yours, Gene. I appreciate everything you do. The Michael Brooks show. My name's Adam or something like that. And he was like, Adam, it's great to meet you. And then he said, you might know me as Dragon Slayer 19. Oh, I've heard of this Dragon Slayer 19. Have you really? He's famous. Get out of here. No, no, no. You were talking about him earlier in the week, I think. Oh, okay. So anyway, Gene immediately he says, Oh my God, Dragon Slayer 19, that's so cool. <laughs> so that's pretty boss that you can get away with saying your name's Dragon Slayer 19 and the person actually helps you out. This week's word of the week, the week, the word that I read in work writing by one of our guests this week, a word that I did not know the definition to is from Richard Seymour's book, The Twittering Machine. Jeffy, do you know the meaning of the word? Well, first of all, the word that it didn't that didn't make was scripturient, which I had never heard before. Had you heard the word scripturient before? No. Okay. It means the urge to write. But I... the word that I chose is freshet. Freshet. Oh, what is a freshet? Is it like a little a little uh fillip on the eyelid? Ooh, I like that. I would have <laughs> I would have believed that. No, it's the flood of a river from heavy rain. Or melted snow. Uh-huh. A freshette. Fresh it kind of hits you like a Philip <laughs> on the lip. Uh, also, when I was uh, up north in Michigan, I was reading the weekly paper, Houghton Lake Resorter. It's like 15, 20 inches wide. It's the craziest. It's like a, from a printing press from the 19th century. They had uh, a lot of their articles. The headline is bigger than the actual article. The headline was North Shore Bar Fight Leads to Arrests. You then read, read the article. The article said that there was a, a bar fight in a North Shore bar and that 30 people were involved. Three people went to the hospital. Three were arrested. People were, uh, who went to the hospital were released uh, immediately. They weren't hurt that bad. But they kept calling it a North Shore bar at Houghton Lake. A North Shore bar at Houghton Lake. Mm. A North Shore? Where, mm. where is the North Shore? Well, it's on the North. But more importantly, <laughs> uh, there's only one bar on the North Shore of Houghton Lake. <laughs> and they are a prominent advertiser in the Houghton Lake Resorter. <laughs> and they had an ad right there on the same page. So Spicorn Bar, good for you guys covering up your 30, your, your bar fight that included 30 people. Also, that's, you know, that's why it's a conflict of interest. You know, they're not going to mention the bar. Of course not. They're an advertiser. Finally, I just want to share this with you and I get your opinion. I saw an ad for an erectile dysfunction cure that claims it works like magic. Now, Jeff, do you want to consume any product that claims it works like magic? Do you want something to work like magic on you? No, I want something to be magic. That would I be good. I don't want anything that is similar to magic. <laughs> right. Just real magic would be nice. Right. Real magic would be great. But similar to magic, things like sleight of hand, uh, a trick, an illusion. Or a little crank or you know, wire in the ceiling. It, I, don't, I, don't I don't want that attached to my 
No. Erection. No. <laughs> Whatever. No. I don't want that at all. So, yeah, I don't or, want any... Electrical kind of, stimulation and nothing like that. Yeah, a cure that works like magic. No. 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 I'm going to pass a on cure that. that is magic. That's all I want. All right, Jeffy. Chuck. Until next the week. First, this is the closest I've ever come to winning the question from hell. Oh, I know. It was the first time, maybe first or second time I mentioned you during the question from hell. But again, because of your contract, you know, I apologize I know, for that. Of course. I, I, and, I regret that. I regret signing that. <laughs> and the collective bargaining agreement that you and Alex have made with me also really undermined that ability for you to win that prize. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this is the life I chose. <laughs> All right, Jeffy, until next week. Yeah. Stay beautiful. Oh, I will. You. The best way for you to get the good word out about the evil content of This Is Hell is to share the entire show or individual interviews or correspondence reports. Thanks this week goes out to all the people who shared our interview with Katie Halper of the new uh, podcast, Useful Idiots, with past This Is Hell guest Matt Taibbi. Katie was on last week to reveal the anti-Bernie Sanders bias in the media on the right and the left. Thanks for sharing that interview. Goes out to Vincent, Robert, Daniel, Jeremy, Victoria, Gorilla, Gramophonics, Ian, Nick with no C, Jake, Fabio, Matt, and Rob. Thanks for sharing. Also goes to Julie Fergus, Jeff with one F, Nick with a C. Thanks to the dozens of you who shared our live report from the fires in Brazil by correspondent Brian Muir. Thanks to Jeffrey, Rowan, Ja Nation, Virginia, Betsy, Krimsky, Morrow, Vior, and Bert. And thanks to Maya, who writes Ben... Uh, Brian Mears' reporting has been and continues to be crucial to my understanding of Brazil. And I highly recommend following him on Twitter at Brian M. Telesur and or listening to his reporting on outlets like This Is Hell Radio. Props to those of you who shared our interview with P.E. Moskowitz on the case against free speech, including Jeremy and Black Rose book Distro. And uh, all the people who did so shared that interview anonymously when you are sharing the case against free speech. That's probably not such a bad idea. Finally, thanks for sharing goes to Marco, Lawrence, Jesse, Bobby, and Johnny. Alex, what have you been up to on social media? Uh, after reading that Richard Seymour book, I'm trying to engage a little bit less online, which is uh, maybe not what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, but the favorite thing that I shared all week was um, a piece uh, for Edge Effects magazine called Reflections on the Plantationo Scene. Excuse me. A, a conversation with Donna Haraway and Anna Singh. I think that's Anna Lowen. Uh, maybe now it's just Anna Singh, but I think that was uh, we had her on to talk about the mushroom at the end of the world. And there's a oh. there's a long piece about how calling things the Anthropocene uh, indicts a lot more people who didn't make any decisions in, into uh, that's a good point. What happened? Yeah, it was a really great piece. Um, and I'd love to have Donna Haraway on the show. That'd be great. Oh yeah, you want me to look into her? Sure. Right. Uh, also, I shared on Twitter what happens when you search for pictures of the Amazon fire on Google Image Search. All you get is dozens of pages of uh, a product called the Amazon Fire. It oh, didn't, help, didn't, uh, didn't help me when I was looking for pictures of the Amazon I Fire for that uh, Brian Mirror. Never thought about how how stupid it is of Amazon to call their tablet Fire. Yeah, <laughs> never uh, made that connection before. Uh, uh, yeah, and our new uh, tablet's called the Genocide. Uh, you, you enjoy the Amazon Genocide. It's really great. Also, I uh, took the Richard Seymour Challenge uh, for his book, where every time I read something new by Richard Seymour, I uh, see how far I can get in his writing before I have to look up a word. And uh, this time I made it as far as the table of contents. Because of scripturian. Yeah, that's a, a new low for me. Yeah. 
Uh, also, we would say thanks uh, to Justin Ferrar on Twitter who said that uh, thanks to This Is Hell for turning me on to Brian Meir and Brazil Wire, both current, both vital for keeping me in touch with current events in Brazil. So thanks for listening, Brian. Or uh, Justin. Uh, Alex, Brian. I have a question for you. Yeah. Uh, the people from the Michael Brooks show said on stage something that was pretty inaccurate because they mentioned your name but not your name. They said, we have to talk to you later on because we auctioned off Felix's Twitter feed. And now I assume they meant Alex's Twitter feed. And I assume that they meant the This Is Hell radio Twitter feed. What does auctioning off a Twitter feed mean? Uh, I have absolutely no idea, but I'm available for the right price. <laughs> I know, exactly. That's what I was going to I'm the only say. one with a password, so <laughs> Man, uh, get at me. Because I want to rummage around in the deep pockets of the Michael Brooks show. All right. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week. Alex Jerry, join me today shortly after the show is over for the closing of This Is Art 2019, our annual art show that opens every July during our annual listener appreciation party. If you missed the party, come see the art. If you were at the party, see the art one last time and meet some of the artists whose work is on display and other artists who have participated in the show in the past. That's the This Is Art 2019 closing party at Second Story Studios Art Gallery, the gallery we share a space with up here above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West of In Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, that's today from 2 p.m. to 7 p.m. Alex What's happening on next week's show? Uh, next week, we're going to get an update on the Hong Kong protest movement from Brian Hugh, who oh, was just on uh, three weeks ago, four weeks ago. Uh, and then also, and I'm really excited about this, uh, from Repeater Books, we're going to have Alex Adams to talk about his book, How to Justify Torture Inside the Ticking Time Bomb Scenario. Sweet. And uh, Keir Milburn will be on to talk about his book, Generation Left. Oh, fantastic, dude. That was a uh, listener suggestion. So we'll thank that person uh, next week. Uh, I want to thank the people who appeared on this week's show. Well, thanks to Alex Jerry. Thanks to Leo O'Connell for producing this week's show. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for delivering yet another spectacular moment of truth. Also, thanks to Aviva Chomsky, who wrote the TomDispatch.com article, Jobs, the the Environment, and a Planet in Crisis. And I want to congratulate myself for never, ever mentioning her dad during that interview. Thanks to sociologist... Adia Harvey Wingfield, author of Flatlining Race, Work, and Healthcare in the New Economy. You should go back and listen to that article because Adia is a firm believer that The Wire is unequivocally the greatest show ever created. So that's that. Also, thanks to political writer and broadcaster Richard Seymour for returning to This Is Hell to discuss his new book, which everybody should read, The Twittering Machine. Thanks to Richard Hunsinger, who is an activist and writer and member of Atlanta's Housing Justice League. He wrote the article Holocaust Capitalism, which you can find at Cosmonaut at Cosmonaut.com. This week's uh, Hangover Cure was Chicken Breast, and the winner of the question from hell, the person who won Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and don't forget, Ibram will be appearing Friday, September 6th at Evanston Township High School at 7 p.m. Go back and listen to earlier parts of the show where you can get all of those details. Thanks to, or congratulations to Marty P., who is the winner of this week's question from hell. This is not the media. This is hell. There is only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning's show. 
That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms toward the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. I can't believe we got through this. Uh, My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thanks to everybody for building our studios.